Welcome everyone to Dabo's Fingers episode 43, Wedded, Bedded, Deaded. <laughs> was, that, was that too heavy? No, it was perfect. I just really like the title. It's a good title. Well done, Brooke. Hats off. Thanks, guys. Uh, as always, I'm Scatty and Brooke and Matter uh, with, with, with us tonight. Hello. Hey. Uh, and... Not as always, because usually we're covering five chapters. Tonight we're covering four chapters of A Storm of Swords. That's Arya 10, Cat 7, Arya 11, and Tyrion 6. Uh, four chapters tonight instead of five. Well, you'll see why. Uh, that's chapters 50 to 53 of A Storm of Swords, according to Wookie Bison and Fire. We are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast for a special segment we call Davos After Dark, which gets into all the meaty, spoilery kind of stuff uh, that people reading along with us don't want to hear so we'll warn you before that segment pops up on you uh following after Davos after dark tonight uh, we've got a little bit of a even more special episode because we are conducting another segment of films get fingered discussing Yay. the <laughs> recently released captain america civil war film this will be uh pure unadulterated spoilers uh, for the film so it, i mean if you haven't seen it yet just turn off before it comes on it's at the very end so it's easy to miss uh just turn it off uh, also, as always, if you want to contact us, uh, suggest topics for future episodes, give us some commentary. Uh, we love hearing from you. Uh, DavosFingers.com, uh, email at WeirdDavosFingers at gmail.com, Twitter at DavosFingers, or you can find us on the Facebooks. Just two quick uh, newsy things. Uh, we reached a quarter million listens over the Ugh. last couple weeks. Mind-blowing mind that that happens. That's a lot of ears we've polluted. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rock and roll and noise pollution. Sorry, I couldn't. Uh, you I couldn't, couldn't help yourself. I couldn't help myself. I don't. Never, never hold back. ACDC coming at you via Scott. Uh, okay, so yay, I guess, and thanks uh, for the support, everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. It's crazy to us when we see numbers like this and we're still just like weirded out by it but thanks a hundred thousand of them are from me <laughs> to boost their numbers i just got it on a continuous loop just you have ruined my night yep. <laughs> sorry guys and uh last thing just um we got a very touching facebook message uh from one of our listeners we don't want to go into all the details uh specifically because it was sent in a not a, not a public fashion just wanted to comment that um when we get messages like that you know we help this person through a tough time in their life and again just kind of blows the doors off it's just crazy to us that that our little swearing insulting each other podcast can help people crazy and so thanks for that and yeah thanks thanks for for letting us know that's amazing yeah, we definitely didn't set out to do this, and we still don't think that we're going to change the world or anything with this podcast. But, uh, you know, if we can make you guys smile a little bit, uh, you know, that that's all the reward we need. So yeah. thank you for telling us, and uh, God bless you, person that sent us that personal message, you and the mm-hmm. family. So, Right. Okay, uh, no more further ado. Uh, Brooke, your episode, my chapter, anything to add? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Arya, coming at you. She of the horse face. Arya, on the foot, horse face, sticking with the pointy end. Arya, on the foot, 
horse face. Sticking with the boy Neanderthal. Arya and the Hound travel in a wain. That's like a wagon stolen from a farmer on the King's Road, pulled by two old drays with Stranger tied on behind. That's uh, the Hound's horse, Stranger. They're disguised as peasants and hope to glide through the camp uh, at the twins with gifts for the wedding and on the belief that no one will look twice at them because they're dressed as peasants. It works! Huzzah! Sir Donald Hay inspects the cargo, asks a couple of cursory questions, and just lets them through. Arya goes through some uneasy feelings. She's kind of trying to combat them as they draw closer. She's afraid to hope, but knows that her mother and brother are the merest of moments away. And she's kind of starting to get a little hopeful and, and trying not to get that way because things have gone so poorly for her when she gets hopeful. Uh, and it's Rob's army, so she feels good about arriving amongst them. Except for one little loose end that she left at Hall named Roose Bolton uh, that might know who she is and what she'd done. Uh, she's She feels pretty good about it. On the approach, Arya notes how terrible the music coming from the twins is. The two towers are playing different songs and not coordinated in their efforts. Imagine Nickelback trying to play jazz <laughs> and Hanson trying to play metal at the <laughs> same time. Maybe this is what she's hearing. Anyway, Arya's response, they're not very good, is an understatement. She tries to find banners she recognizes on the way through, but it's night and they all kind of look the same. It almost gets the feeling like she's still trying to escape even this close to success. Like maybe it's some learned behavior because she's looking for banners to recognize that she could flag down or something. Anyway, they arrive at the camp proper and they're questioned again, waylaid this time uh, by Bolton men. Uh, loosely, they say, fuck you, you aren't getting in the castle, but you can leave your delicious pig's feet with this party and go see a dude named Sedgkins over there to do that. So they travel toward the drop-off point recommended by the Bolton Guard. The feast tents are full of drunk men feasting the night away as they pass by. Arya encourages to stop at those feasting tents. She knows Northmen when she sees them, and they're right there. Let's just stop in and say hello. But the Hound is dogged in his pursuit of his goal to ransom Arya. Sedgkins can bugger himself. It's your bloody brother I want. And that's the end of the chapter. It's a short little slap of a chapter there. Yeah. Very short. Uh, not a whole lot really happens. Not not sure that there's uh, too much really to say. Um, there was one little bit in there that's a little interesting about uh, Arya says she had, a, when, when she's combating the feelings of hope uh, because she's getting so close and doesn't want to believe that it's true, <laughs> she says something about not remembering, couldn't remember a dream she had. And I was like, who are you who's writing this? And what have you done with my George R.R. R. Martin? Because <laughs> the George R.R. R. Martin that writes the books I know always has people remember their dreams and dwells in them quite a bit. That's a clue if there ever was one. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty weird moment. I'm like, wait, wait, I expected two paragraphs of dream here at least. <laughs> Instead, I got, I forgot it. But it was weird. terrible. Right? It was a terrible dream, yes. Yeah. Noted as terrible, but she doesn't remember exactly how terrible or what was terrible about it. I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, the, the the overarching theme of this chapter really just seems to be, like, she's so close. Uh, and she's been so close a few times. But it's just kind of a plodding pace. Not a lot happens. And it's just kind of, let's get there already. Let's get there already. She's there. Let's Let's get there, right? That's kind mm -hmm. of the only thing I really get out of this chapter. You guys have anything to add? I did like... Um the hounds sort of like coaching her on how to handle knights i thought was mm -hmm. yeah 
really interesting and useful and also uh, another good example of how he feels about proper knights. Yes. um, His disrespect for them. And like that disrespect was perfectly exampled in that entire interaction. It's good. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. There was some moments there that were kind of, that were kind of, it was like breaking past, breaking through the hound skin, just a tiny, tiny bit. And they even shared like kind of a little joke there where Scad was talking about the music. Arya's like, this band really sucks. And the hound's like, yeah, it really does suck, doesn't it? <laughs> it was like the small little moment of them just like. <laughs> yeah, to Brooke's point, we've, we've seen that before, right? Uh, we saw it when Cat, uh, I think way back in episode six, The Crossroads. Cat comes across Jason Malister, a man whom she's met many, many, many times, and just kind of tries to be a peasant and not get noticed, and yeah, she just looks right past her, right? And uh, yeah, it's he's right. You, if you if you dress a certain way and behave a certain way, these people will look right past you as useless. Speaking of not recognizing, the one thing that I thought about this chapter was uh, how Arya thinks her family won't know her. Yeah. And when you look at the chronology, it's only been about a year. There's no question, I think, that Catelyn would recognize her own daughter, even with the weird haircut. Um, it mentioned that she, by the way, the haircut mentioned she was kind of bald on one side, <laughs> kind of like the hound is kind of bald on one mm. side. And he's, he's like, this is how a haircut, haircut should go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to give you the hound special. Yeah. <laughs> and she, she hasn't grown that much in a year uh, physically. But it's the, I think, the personal growth that she's gone through that where she feels like a completely different person now than she was just a year ago. Um, Little does she know that her family's been growing an awful lot as well. And she's really not, you know, that far ahead of them in that regard. I felt bad for her. Her family would certainly 100% recognize her and be so happy to see her. Yep. And they will be so happy to see her. Uh, should, Should we move on to the next chapter? Let's do it. I don't. I don't have much. I think else. we're setting a record. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, Matt. Let's uh, let's hear about some Catelyn. The words will cut you like Valyrian steel to a hair. She can love Jon Snow, but she's sure to let you know where she stands. A devoted mother who married the brother of a dead. Beyonce. She's vengeful and hateful, loving and faithful. She's Catelyn, Catelyn Stark. The rain was pounding, the drums were pounding, and Catelyn's head was pounding. Whether from the very crappy wedding band, the stresses of the awkward situation her son's penis had placed them in, or the what I would imagine to be overwhelmingly pungent smells of just being amongst any number of frays. Uh, whatever that may be, <laughs> Catelyn finds herself ready for this whole affair to be over with. Probably not all that different an attitude for anyone who's been subject to playing the role of immediate family member at a wedding. You just want it to be done with. Okay. So inside the main hall of the twins with Weasel Walder McPoyle Frey himself overseeing all... <laughs> Wedding guests there to celebrate the holy union of Edmure Tully and Rosalind Frey were packed in like so many, well, Freys, that they could scarcely move. The air was thick and hot. The food, which included jellied calves' brains, gross, seemed Delish. to be about 
seemed to be about the equivalent of Chuckarama. Uh, but the alki flowed like the green fork, which even under those conditions means a party. The great John in particular found himself drinking every fray competitor under the table and was still ready to drive everyone home after the night's festivities. Others were more subdued, like the non-drinking small John, Robin Flint, Patrick Malister, and the pretty in address Stacy Mormont, all assigned to be Rob's guard for the evening and therefore remaining sober. As for Rob, he painted a smile on his face, ate every bite of the subpar food in front of him, and danced gracefully with Walder Frey's female progeny, all the while enduring the never-ending heh-filled jabs the Lord of the Crossing lobs his way. Outside, the men-at-arms gathered in large tents to partake of ale, and other knights and lower lords were fed and watered in the other tower, so all in all, not a bad party. Uh, even so, Catelyn feels that she's never experienced a wedding less joyful. Edmure seemed happy, doting on his pretty young bride, who he was pleased, of course, to find out, like we talked about last episode, had a head full of hair, working eyes, and no visible skin conditions. <laughs> but Rosalind herself seemed petrified with a smile that seemed painted on. So having at one time played the part of maiden bride herself, Catelyn empathizes with the girl's anxiety. And it wasn't about to get better for the newly wedded Rosalind, as Lord Walder called for the betting to begin. Uh, Rosalind's face went an even lighter shade of white as the great John hoisted her up over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes and carried her up to the wedding suite, while men surrounded her in the formal betting ceremony of ripping off her clothes on the way up and shouting body jokes at her. The women did the same thing to Edmure, minus the throwing over the shoulder part, Although, who knows, Fat Walda might have been able to pull it off. Uh, but as we can imagine, Edmure took it more in stride and seemed to be, of course, enjoying himself, as Edmure does in those situations. As bride and groom were carried out of the hall and the commotion dies down, Catelyn observes who's left in the hall. Walder Frey, of course, along with a few of his sons and grandsons, all apparently in various states of inebriation, as well as Rob and his guards. Catelyn is just brooding on the fact that Walder probably won't approve of Rob not joining in the betting ceremony when she notes a queer happening. Daisy Mormont, who seemed to be the only other lady left in the hall, approaches Edwin Frey and politely asks for a dance. Edwin reacts like a total jerk, giving her a major cold shoulder and stomping away, violently, as Gurm puts it. So Catelyn, partially to her own surprise, is bothered by this and follows Edwin. And just then, the less-than-talented wedding band stumbles into playing The Reigns of Castamere, an ominous, sad song inspired by Tywin Lannister after he had annihilated an entire house, The Reigns, spelled R-E-Y-N-E-S, of Castamere. Anyways, catching up to Edwin, Catelyn grabs his arm, and then grows cold when she feels iron rings beneath his sleeve. Edwin is apparently armored. So not knowing what else to do, Catelyn slaps Edwin across the face, and that's when uh, hell descends upon the twins, and uh, there's really no other way to do this than just to read. So I'm going to just read a little passage from the chapter of what happened next. Um, it says, Edwin Frey shoved her aside. The music drowned all other sound, echoing off the walls as if the stones themselves were playing. Rob gave Edwin an angry look and moved to block his way and staggered suddenly as a quarrel sprouted from his side, just beneath his shoulder. If he screamed then, 
The sound was swallowed up by the pipes and horns and fiddles. Catelyn saw a second bolt pierce his leg and saw him fall. Up in the gallery, half the musicians had crossbows in their hands instead of drums or lutes. She ran toward her son until something punched in the small of her back and the hard stone floor came up to slap her. Rob, she screamed. She saw small John Umber wrestle a table off its trestles. Crossbow bolts thudded into the wood, one, two, three, as he flung it down on top of his king. Robin Flint was ringed by frays, their daggers rising and falling. Sir Wendell Manderley rose ponderously to his feet, holding his leg of lamb. A quarrel went in his open mouth and came out the back of his neck. Sir Wendell crashed forward, knocking the table off its trestles and sending cups, flagons, trenchers, platters, turnips, beets, and wine, bouncing, spilling, and sliding across the floor. Uh, so then Catelyn, her back on fire. This is back to me now, no longer reading. Uh, Catelyn inches slowly along on her stomach from the ground, continuing to watch as Rob's men are brutally slaughtered by Freys and Northmen alike. The small John, Daisy, Blackwoods, Norries, Flints, all fall victim to the daggers, swords, crossbow bolts, and axes of their hosts as Walder Frey watches greedily and lustfully from his throne. It's then that Catelyn sees the table that the small John had thrown over Rob begin to stir, and the thrice-punctured Rob slowly rising out from under it. The king in the north arises, Walder Frey mocks. Seems we killed some of your men, your grace. Oh, but I'll make you an apology. That will mend them all again, hey? The wounded Catelyn, finding a burst of strength not uncommon in mothers desperate to protect their children, snatches a dropped dagger and grabs the closest Frey, which happens to be Jingle Bell, Walder's half-wit grandson. Holding the knife to Jingle Bell's throat as she herself screams for mercy, Catelyn pleads with Walter to let Rob go free, desperately and futilely promising that they will forget all that happened there and just move on. So on her honor as a Tully and a Stark, she promises. Walder, of course, scoffs at this, and Catelyn turns to Rob, pleading with him to get up and walk out. Do it for Jane, she says. Mother, Rob gasps. Grey wind. But those are the last words uttered by the king in the north before Roos Bolton, who'd been present at the feast earlier but had left shortly before the slaughter started, steps up to Rob, says, Jamie Lannister sends his regards, and then thrusts his long sword through Rob's heart. For her part, after seeing this, Catelyn viciously slits Jingle Bell's throat, sawing away at his neck until she strikes bone. The tears burn down her cheeks, seeping into the deep wounds left by her own nails as she raked them down her face despairingly. It hurts so much, she thinks. Our children, Ned, all our sweet babes, Rickon, Bran, Arya, Sansa, Rob, please, Ned, please make it stop. Make it stop hurting. Uh, Catelyn Stark notes the blood running down her hands and how it tickles as uh, from behind a hand grabs her scalp. No, don't cut my hair. Ned loves my hair, she thinks, as she feels steel touching her throat. And as Groom says, the steel's bite was red and cold. That's the last line of the chapter. Whew. Well done. Good reread, man. I was there. That was... Groom said it was the hardest chapter like he's ever had to write, right? Even writing a chapter summary of that was... Sucked. Like, it was so hard. <laughs> Where do biggest we go moment, from here? Yeah. Biggest moment in the Song of Ice and Fire so far? What was your guys' first reaction on your first read? Do you remember? I just, I, I think I talked about this. Oh, what, what was it? Oh, I think it was about Craster's Mutiny, that it just comes so suddenly. And that's kind of how this one was, too. Like, 
she feels the the chain mail under Edwin Frey's robes. And then all of a sudden people are just dying like two lines later. You know what I mean? And Grimm just has this knack for throwing you into a situation. And it's not till you've read a paragraph later till you realize what's really going on and you don't know how to handle it. Right. Mm-hmm. And he also makes you feel utterly stupid. Yeah. <laughs> because you go back and read the chapter again. And you're like, there's all these little things he's dropping. Mm-hmm. that I should have put that together that something was going to happen, you know? Right. But, you know, all these things that are just off. The food sucks. The music sucks. These are two really important people getting married and, you know, haven't really spared all the expense and they're packed in and it's too hot. And just like all these kind of negative images of this thing that should boil down eventually to there's something going on here. Mm-hmm. and But I didn't... I didn't catch it. It was, like you said, shocking. Just, what? Wait, what? Yeah, what What didn't help was Robin and Catelyn both, like, reassuring each other that they just have to get through this. This is almost over. Like, like downplaying the, the, yeah. the severity of the situation. And, and it kind of just, like, calmed me. Like, yeah, they just got to get through this. Like, what, what kind of shenanigans does Walter Frey have up his sleeve? But never, never did I think... Mm-hmm that such a slaughter would happen, um, especially because it violates the guest right, which is also throughout the series really emphasized as, as a, as a thing that everyone honors, but, but is extremely important to the Northmen. Yeah. Uh, more, more, more uh, honored there than, than other places. And the phrase are still North. Yeah. They're, they're, they're Riverlanders technically. Um, but the Boltons aren't, the Boltons are, True Blue North. I mean, they're they're about as north mm-hmm. as you can get, unless your name is Stark or Umber. Um, and, and Catelyn kind of reassures us of that too in her previous chapter. Where remember how like relieved she was after they got the food? She's like, "Remember, Rob, you gotta ask for the yeah. salt." <laughs> they yeah. finally got it. She's like, "Oh, we're yeah. gonna be all right." Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why Arya's chapter was so short. We talked about, you know, it was such a quick chapter. I think that was to prepare us. It was kind of to build tension a little bit. It was like we're so anxious for Arya to get back to Mm. her family. And so I think maybe George wrote that short purposefully to kind of be like, it's going to happen. You guys have waited long enough. I'm just going to give you this short little chapter and then Arya's going to be home, you know? Yeah. It it also adds to the stakes as if you need to add to the stakes, right? And remember mm -hmm. also that chapter you just had was Arya and she's almost here. A, She's outside somewhere, thing. Yeah. yeah. Right outside those walls. I thought, uh, there's a little line in there uh, where Kat says she wondered how many would be dead before the year was done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know if that was a typo, and George meant to write night before the night was done. But that's what he should have wrote. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, are very, we are very close to the new year. So um, That's true. In A Song of Ice and Fire. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, speaking of hints and clues, can I can I take you guys on a little time travel journey? Yeah, I was uh, just going to ask if we want to go back and talk about some of the hints from the previous chapter and maybe even before if you want. Let's hear it, dude. Well, the the most flagrantly obvious one is way back in the Danny chapter when she's in the House of the Undying and she mm. sees all of those visions. And I've yep. got it here. The second is a room filled with savagely slaughtered corpses, oh. which appear to have been attending a feast. Mm-hmm. A dead man with the head of a wolf. 
wearing an iron crown and holding a leg of lamb like a king might hold a scepter, sits at a throne, his eyes looking at Danny with mute appeal. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. What wow. else you got, Matt? Well, that was certainly a big one. I was looking back at some of the Aria ones um, from the previous chapter. Uh, the Terrible Dream uh, that we talked about. Um Let's see. She talks about how a hedge of wagons and carts had been drawn up along the perimeter to make a crude wooden wall against any attack. I wonder if the hedge of wagons and carts was actually to keep people in. Mm. Yeah. Especially because the guards there. Do you remember who the guards were? What house they were of? Boltons. Yeah. They I were Boltons. In my summary. Yeah. Um the green fork growling like a lion in its den. Yeah. Uh, there were men stringing their bows in the previous Arya chapter. Hmm. Arya's walking through and she sees all these people partying and then she sees like a handful of guys off to the side stringing their bows. I have a question about the music. Uh, would this, Matt, would this work? So, Well, so two things. Am I, am I right in reading this that they actually... Did, did did they arm uh, soldiers with instruments, or did they arm musicians with crossbows? The first one. I would say that by the quality of the music that was being played, they were soldiers. So I'm thinking it would be even worse than what was described. Right. Yeah, that's like, the first thing that entered my mind, was the amount of rehearsal that they would have to do just to sound... Passable. Just to be, just yeah. to, for Catelyn to be able to recognize the uh, the the tunes of the songs as poorly played as they are, yeah, I I think would take tons of rehearsal time. Yeah, like everyone else is out um, practicing in the yard, fighting and everything. And they're like, oh, we got to go practice music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> crossbow guys, it should be target practice. No, I got to go do my loot lesson. I bet some of them were already amateur musicians. <laughs> Maybe. Well, like, <clears throat> like, air uh, looting in their spare time. Scab doing the ACDC yeah. songs in the podcast. He has no business doing like, um The movie that I always talk about, that thing you do, uh, that one comes to mind because the guys that were in that didn't know how to really play guitar or music and stuff. And they ended up, I think they rehearsed for something like three months of almost every day practicing to learn how to actually play their instruments so that they could play them passively Passably. on screen. Yeah. And that was just to look good. I mean, still when they're being filmed, uh, it's to a pre-recorded track that somebody else played. But this was just to help them even look like they could play their instruments. You know what I mean? And that was like months of eight-hour-a-day rehearsal. So I would think that – and that was just a four-piece band – I'd imagine something bigger than that would take a lot more time even to sound terrible. <laughs> Seems like it would have been a better idea, though. Uh, Walder should have watched that thing you do before setting this up because he could have just had the guys pretending to play their instruments instead of actually with drowning the, out the With music the pre-recorded track. Well, let the musicians that know what they're doing actually play <laughs> because half of them were real musicians. And the yeah, ones that, are tr that aren't trained, just let them pretend. Yeah, just let them air it. Yeah. Matt, you mentioned at the beginning of the segment that this might have been the biggest turning point in the book so far. Do you believe that? Potentially, to this point. Um, 
yeah. because all of a sudden you don't have a king in the north. Mm-hmm. And sure, it's two ma- uh, main characters that are dead, but this whole rebellion, everything that the north hinges on is now without its its leader, without its cause, right? Mm-hmm. These guys, uh, Rob Stark didn't declare himself king in the north. He was declared king in the north by his bannermen, which is interesting in and of itself. And Catelyn comments about how Rob shared that loyalty. same ability to yeah. inspire loyalty that Ned did. And I think that's worth its own discussion mm-hmm. um, of how they did that. But uh, very impactful. Remember, yeah. you know, with Stannis beaten on the Blackwater, which might be one of the big moments as well. Um, that's That's huge. And Renly dead. And now the Lannisters have the Tyrells as well, making them as far as easily having the largest number of soldiers of all the five kings. Um, We know Mm -hmm. Balon Greyjoy is dead too. And now the king of the north is dead. So So I want to field that question, Brooke, even though you asked Matt. Uh, (laughs) I was getting to you. (laughs) Settle down. Settle down. Uh, Go ahead. I'm settled. I just didn't want to be missed uh, before we moved on. (laughs) So, so from a from a plot perspective, and from a how the results impact the characters in world, I think this is probably the biggest one because it it does seemingly I don't know it seems to to end the war at least between the North and the and, and the Lannisters, but uh, from a reader perspective, and um, you know a reader of fiction, it's still Ned to me. Ned's beheading was still like the the turning point for me that's most that was most impactful as a reader. That kind of sets you up for that whole it sets you up for the rest of the series, right? right? Yeah. And you you know at that point that nobody's safe. Right. That's what I mean, yeah. Impactful to me as a reader, yeah. But impactful yeah. to the world, yeah, I think this is it. I think. Yeah, I, I agree with you mostly on that. I would say impactful to the world was Robert's death but impactful to me is still Ned's death. But now I'm like numb to the other tragedies because that one hit like side hit me so hard. I'll never forget throwing my book across the room. Like I was so shocked. (laughs) Me flipping ahead to see if there's any more Ned chapters in the book. In vain. (laughs) (laughs) That's when it dawned on me. He's really yeah. gone. Can we talk a little bit about where Rob went wrong with the phrase? So obviously he went wrong when he decided to act with his penis. Uh, but 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 was there any way to rectify this to 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 avoid an outcome like this? Yeah, avoid the phrase. That yeah. was it. Not, Not go. ever go back to the twins. Yeah, and then he doesn't get their soldiers right, which is right, which he needs. Well, needs. Yeah, I don't know. He's the crossing more than absolutely anything. Yeah. Well, the problem was, is this was a huge alliance that was essentially made over a very temporal need, right? They just needed to cross over into the Riverlands and all of a sudden Rob's marrying a fray. Thanks, Mom. And that right there should kind of throw up maybe a little bit of a flag yeah, well, what I'm what I'm referring to is in the chapter, um, very specifically, uh, Walder says, um, "My roof, my rule." Right? He's talking about uh-huh. th- th- specifically. This is um, 
keeping Grey Wind out of the feasting hall. Keeping Grey Wind uh, out, yeah. But but I think it's it's meant to be illustrative to the way Walder's approaching this whole thing. I have the power here. Fuck you, you do not have the power here. I am still your king, and I will put you down now. Like I feel I feel like he was I feel like Rob almost went too much hat in hand on this. You owe me your allegiance. I'll repay you in kindness later for it. And yeah, I'm sorry I fell in love. But my hmm. roof, my rule does not fly here. I'm your king. I'll kill you now if you'd like. I mean, it, it's... He needed to make a power grab at some point. The, the hat in hand stuff went too far, I think. No? No, I, I agree with you. I'm just, I'm just like, what would the outcome have been if he had been more aggressive? I don't think the outcome would have changed. It would have just been... Well, so here... Yeah, so your question was, is dancing. there anything could he have been... Is there anything he could have done differently at that point? And it looked like every the plans were in place by then. No matter how Rob would have responded to stuff like that, he was still going to die that night. Uh, potentially, he could... But but whenever this conversation happened with Walder, where he said, no gray wind allowed, at that point he should have been like, whoa, reality check. He's in control here. And he's being brazen about it, and that's not the way this world is. Yep. And and re and and, I, you know, I don't drastically skipped the wedding. I you know I don't know, but like something wherein he's reassessing the situation and recovering the power that he is owed by being king. I don't know. It's a yeah. No, I see it's where a, you're it's going. It's a hindsight is twenty twenty thing, I suppose, but. Right. If I hear no, that from uh, from someone who is my subject, my roof, my rule, that's that is a slap in the face and a sign of something. Mm -hmm. And it might have been that just I see what you're saying, and it might have just been that Rob was. I mean, he's got his eyes set on the north, right? Yeah. He's, he wants his brains to get moved on back. his wedding. Yeah, his his whole deal is, I think, just same as cats. Just get through this. Smile, mm -hmm. dance, have a few bites of food. Uh, and then get out of there in the morning, right? Yep. And he really wasn't in the mood to argue or start a fight or come down on someone. It was just get through tonight. You you make a good point about establishing yourself and who you are, and no matter what, I'm still the king and all of that. Yeah. I think a lot of this chapter can be discussed in Davos After Dark. Yeah. Yep. But aside from the brutal slaughter... <laughs> What do you guys think of this bedding ceremony? <laughs> I, I have I have a note about it. Please share. Well, you brought it up. Do you have something? Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, pretty <laughs> awful. Very nervous. <laughs> yeah, extremely. I mean, for some people it would be fine, I'm but it's like... It's... Go ahead. I'm glad it covers both the bride and the groom. I'm glad it's like right, yeah. just ripping the dress off of the bride. But even so, it is... I, it it sounds it, the act itself is horrible, but I love that George has created this world where, you know, that kind of Puritan modesty isn't life or death, right? I mean, yeah. we grew up in a world where women who showed their ankles were imprisoned, <laughs> but in this world, <laughs> yeah. let's see those titties, ladies. Yeah, even like like Catelyn remembering her own and how was it Lord Dustin was commenting <laughs> on her chest. And it's like, this is one of Ned's lords. Like, so much she's like, 
yeah. has this de- demands this degree of respect. There he is drooling over her. It's just oh, ooh, gives me the heebie-jeebies. What was that yeah. uh, probably awful horror film that came out uh, a few years ago, wherein there's one night a year where you can just get away with any crime at all that oh, you want yeah. to. Mm-hmm. And it's just like forgiven, and it like supposedly keeps morality in check for the rest of the year because they get this one right. night to jerk off on each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, it's kind of like that. It's like this is this is the one time where you can just get away with saying or doing anything to these people, and for some, it seems fine. They're like into it even, but it doesn't mean it's okay to just assume it's fine for everyone. Rosalind is a perfect example. I mean, maybe she knows what's going on here, and so that's a source of her unease. I think maybe we can talk a little bit more about that later. But she doesn't seem like the type that's going to be into this regardless. Yeah. No. Violating. And it, like, and and remember, Sansa and and Tyrion didn't have a betting. Yeah. Like, they were able to say, uh, no thanks, yeah. even though there was some lusty gentlemen at that wedding who were into it. And I imagine that... <laughs> Walda and Ruse Bolton did not have a betting. I'm sure Walda was all for it. Yeah. But I don't imagine Ruse would be letting ladies touch him. I think it, alone it would go unspoken. <laughs> One of them might approach and look at him and be like, yeah, you're right. I, I won't touch you. I feel like he does Walda through a hole in a sheet just <laughs> to get an air. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the things we come up with. The betting of Bruce and Fat Walda. Not saying that Fat Walda wouldn't be just really sporty in bed. I feel like she'd be enthusiastic. She's probably a great and participant. A, yeah. yeah. From all accounts, lover. she is super excited to be married to Bruce Bolton. Yes. Yeah. So. But, uh... but she's a bitch, too. She gets like... She's she gets. Funk. Yeah, she's well, she, gotta be. She gets like two sentences, and she uses those two sentences to make fun of her sisters that aren't married yet. <laughs> but she's so right. Well, I know, but yeah, dude, <laughs> give her a break. She's been living in their shadow, man. I know, and that's probably true. But and she even knows why Ruth picked her. Yeah, she totally knew why. Yeah, she's yeah, like, but he still picked me. Is being ashamed of it, and 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 having. <laughs> really poor self-esteem but she's mm-hmm. just a reveling in it yeah yeah listen <laughs> these rules worth a lot of silver i'm 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 jiggling my stomach <laughs> right now <laughs> oh well i think that's all for now i have just one more small thing so we've we've hearkened back to what we thought as readers uh about what's happening as, as this all this violence unfolds do you remember what you thought the first time you read about Catelyn grabbing Jingle Bell and using him for a hostage? Yeah, I thought poor effort. Yes. Yeah, me too. Could she right. really think this is going to help? And I think that just shows the desperation of her situation. It's, yeah. But yeah, there's Jingle Bell. I like that it really? made a little more surreal with the bells uh-huh. going. And, yeah. And the fact that he looks just like Walder. Yeah. Just being sad. I would have rather she tried to throw the dagger at Walder than do what she did. <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. Like, even with no training of throwing her screwed up hand, whatever, being 30 feet away, I would have rather she tried that than anyway. Well, and even the argument of, we'll forget this ever happened. Yeah. What? <laughs> no. As Manderly's lying dead, a Blackwood is lying dead, yeah. an Umber is lying dead. Yeah. 
No, this will not be forgotten. Right. It... Oh, yeah, Dancy Mormont. Oh, so oh, Daisy. <sighs> no. Come back. Yeah. <sighs> that sucks. Axe to the sack. R.I.P. Really this whole thing sucked. This whole chapter is just yes. very sad. Okay, let's, traumatic. let's let's keep going. All right, move on. Aria, underfoot, horse face, sticking with the pointy end. Aria, underfoot, horse face, sticking with the pointy end. Ah. Aria and the Hound are literally on the doorstep of the castle, still on their way to find Catelyn and Rob. When that trusty but tardy Stark intuition starts niggling at Arya. But it's the Hound who puts the pieces together first, swearing a beauty of a curse. (laughs) Seven bloody buggering hells. (laughs) Pulling the Wayne over and pushing Arya to safety as a stream of fully armed riders comes pouring out of the gate that is supposed to be shut for the feast. Arya hears a wolf howling, even over the sound of the mounted men thundering by and the music coming from the castle and the the battle on the banks. And she is struck by sharp feelings of literally, this is what's written, rage and grief. And all around them, chaos is erupting. The feast tents are struck and put to torch with men trapped under them. Arrows and barrels of pitch are catapulted from the castle walls at the camps. A a full battle raging right there on the banks of the overflowing Green Fork. And under it all, Arya recognizes the song still playing from the castle. She doesn't name it, but she heard Tom Sevenstrings sing it. She knows it's the Reigns of Castamere. Um, For some reason, three riders leave the column of riders coming out of the castle and come to investigate the Wayne. Sandor doesn't waste any time cutting Stranger loose and hopping on. Arya isn't afraid so much as worried that someone will take killing the Hound away from her. But she doesn't need to worry because the Hound (laughs) takes care of the three riders in no time flat and offers his hand down to Arya saying, you know, come with me. We've got to get out of here. And she's like, no, no, my, my mother is in there. Rob is in there. And he's like, you idiot. They're dead. Look around you. He tells her to look, look and think. But uh, she's sort of in the middle of a panic and goes running for the castle gates. The porticlus is coming down and the, the drawbridge is coming up. Remember that it's kind of overflown by the by the waters of the moat. So it's it's dropping water. But she, she thinks that she's still going to make it. She's running as fast as she has ever ran in her life. But still, Sandor comes up behind her with an axe that he's stolen from one of the riders, knocks her in the back of the head, and that's the end of the chapter. Another just a short little slap of an Arya chapter. Mm-hmm. Just a... Just a... Bookending the tension. Yeah. Bring us out of the horrible tragedy of the deaths of Catelyn and Rob and all of Rob's men. And now we have the death of Arya. <laughs> Which is just great. This this set Here of chapters is go. just wonderful. Just love it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a there's a very distinct parallel. The hound rode down Micah, Arya's friend, in the same manner. Yeah, um, good call. Cutting, cutting down Micah from horseback, and this is what's happened to Arya as well. Um, the difference being that that the hound actually told Arya to either come with him or go and be a fool and die but mm-hmm. still went after her. And apparently delivered on his promise. Yeah. Well, yeah Be good, a fool and die. Good points. Good points. 
it doesn't make any doesn't make any sense. It's very upsetting. In the span of, I don't know, six, six pages, eight pages, we lose Rob, Cat, Arya, and Jingle Bell, and Daisy Mormont. <laughs> don't forget Daisy Mormont. Yeah, but it's, it's, uh... it's a it's a strange turn, especially given some of the things that happened in that chapter too. I mean, you know, the Hound uh, turning on Arya like that. I mean, I guess his motivations could be well. I've played this ransom thing out as far as I can, and I'll put this girl out of her misery. I don't know. I his motivations are hard, hard to hard to guess here. Um, but but Arya makes takes makes an interesting choice in that chapter before before its end, wherein she betrays her list. The Hound has been a part of her list for a long, long time. Uh, her her prayer list. And she chooses, in the middle of that little fray, there's a little choice she has where she's got a rock in her hand and she's deciding who to help. And instead of trying to help the soldiers trying to kill the hound, she helps the hound, despite the fact that she wants him dead, according to her list. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you know, in, in accordance with, with what Matt said before about they share a little joke, here she's, oh, maybe he's not all bad, I don't want him to die, I think I'm rooting for him here, and then this... Clegane the badass rides her down like Micah. I don't know. Yeah, you kind of get the impression like maybe they don't mind each other's company. <laughs> They're both quiet. Begrudgingly. They're both. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're both, you know, ruled by violent tendencies, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I think Gurm did a good job of representing. Arya's confusion, anger, fright, like 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 she was a little girl full of emotions through this whole chapter and it it really serves to compound the tragedy of not only all of these stark deaths, the fact that she was so close. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. close to being reunited with her mother, mm-hmm. so close to being safe, which has been her primary goal throughout the entire series since Ned died. There there was one uh little thing in there um she she's she hears a wolf howl mm-hmm. uh but it says maybe it maybe it wasn't her ears is nymeria following them or can the wolves just always hear each other my interpretation is that she was hearing gray wind but it says but it says maybe she wasn't hearing it with her ears right so whose Which... ears was she hearing it with I, I feel like she was hearing it in her head Oh, like like Whoa. you know, like the sort of the psychic wolf connection with Rob's wolf. Yeah, sure. Because what I picked up on was that this hearing this this wolf, whether in her head or with her ears, gave her mm. like random. Not, not to saying that she couldn't feel rage and grief at that time, but she wasn't feeling rage and grief before she heard this wolf howl. So. I feel like she was hearing Grey Wind's last howl. Or I definitely felt that's what she was hearing. I I, misin- I'm, well, I don't know if I misinterpreted it or whether we just interpreted it differently. Right. I'll, I'll I'll say the line two different ways. Okay. Maybe it wasn't her ears, or maybe it wasn't her ears. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You you heard it the second. You read it the second way. I read it the first way. Yeah, which I but, I meant like maybe she's somehow in that instance 
warging Nymeria, and yes, I used warging as a verb, and... Oh, yeah, maybe. And and, and Nymeria was hearing Grey Wind's final <gasps> end. And you're saying, no, she's just hearing it in her head, not through her ears, like she's connected to Grey Wind in a way, which I hadn't considered, so that's interesting. Because well, the... Catelyn hears howling too, right, Matt? Yes. Mm-hmm. The The second sentence adds a little bit of context, and I think it could actually support either one of Scad's uh, emphasis. It's a, so only maybe it wasn't her ears that heard it. The sound shivered through Arya like a knife, sharp with rage and grief. So the way that I initially read that is only maybe it wasn't her ears that heard it. The sound shivered through Arya like a knife. So it wasn't like her ears were it, you thinking in a five senses sort of way. Mm-hmm. She wasn't hearing, she was feeling. Oh. And it cut through her. But that could still support the warg theory uh, if we wanted to look at it that way. But it, it feels like it was more than just a sound that you hear. It was something you feel. Whether it's because of the grief in it or right. I don't know. But, just a little thing I latched onto because I like the idea of Nymeria following Arya and protecting her from afar, which <laughs> obviously she failed at here. The wolves are just sucking right now. Grey Wind didn't help Rob either. Jeez. Yeah. What are these wolves for? <laughs> well, I would note that these are the two kids that sent their wolves away. Lady isn't right? doing jack. Oh, jeez. <laughs> these, these are the two kids that sent their wolves away, right? Uh, Nymeria sent, or, or Arya sent Nymeria away, and Rob didn't directly send Grey Wind away, but chose other relationships instead of his relationship with Grey Wind. Bad idea, yeah. Rob. Yeah, yeah. From Catelyn's point of view, uh, Grey Wind and Rob's relationship has had a bit of a rift in it after yeah. the Westerling right. stuff. Right. This makes me so upset. You guys watch Arrested Development, right? No. Of course. Okay. Of course. I've watched. Okay. I've watched episodes, but. <laughs> not not all of it. Okay, just a quick aside to Matt. <laughs> you know George Michael's girlfriend Anne, of course. <laughs> who Michael calls Egg because she's egg. so like forgettable. And... Right. Whatever happened to that Anne? We were both so crazy about. You never liked Anne. That's true. I did not like her. I loved her. But I, I think she's dating someone else right now. Well, then you just you step up and you. You win her back. Okay? Trust me, if he's dating her, he's quite a loser. Will be a loser when you steal her back. Yeah. Anne is a girl for us. That's Jane. Not worth it. <laughs> Not worth it. Okay. Jane's hooks don't lie. Okay. Ready to move on? Ready. Let's, let's travel to King's Landing. Scad, tell us about Tyrion. Cripples and bastards and broken things But the power of the mind can give you wings Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies Tyrion, Lannister, or Imp, if you please (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's time travel, not space travel. My bad. Okay, the peas are overcooked, and so is the mutton. But Tyrion has other problems on his mind. One problem, really, the demanding Oberyn Martell. He wants justice for the murder of his sister, and he wants it soon. Sansa goes to pray, in quotes, and Tyrion gets back to work. Dragon hunting. Those are Baelish dragons, not Danny dragons. But his efforts to collect debts are frustrating, and he's actually happy to receive the summons from his father to the Tower of the Hand. The news of the Tower of the Hand is what you'd expect after reading the last few grisly chapters. Rosalind caught a fine, fat trout. 
Her brother gave her brothers gave her a pair of wolf pelts for her wedding. Joffrey is giddy, Cersei smug, and Tywin grim as always. Tyrion's thoughts immediately go to his pious wife, as Tywin reminds everyone that the war is far from over. However, right on the heels of reminding everyone that the war isn't over, mere seconds later, really, he pretty much admits that it is over. <laughs> the only thing left is for Gregor to rid the realm of the Brave Companions, and for the rest to kneel to them and be forgiven. But Joff disagrees, demanding they all die, and also demanding Rob's head at his own wedding to torment Sansa. Tyrion comes to her defense, actually threatening Joff's life. Uh, Tywin intercedes into the inevitable family brawl with a lesson on how to govern, which I'll just read briefly. Joffrey, when your enemies defy you, you must serve them steel and fire. When they go to their knees, however, you must help them back to their feet. Elsewise, no man will ever bend the knee to you. And any man who must say, I am king, is no true king at all. Ares never understood that, but you will. So a little piece of uh, governing advice from... Uh, Honestly, good advice. Yeah. I good, like it. Good yeah, advice. I liked it a lot. But Joff shocks everyone, though, and instead of nodding and saying, okay, grandfather, he grows a spine, informing Tywin that he, Tywin, <laughs> was afraid of Ares, that he, Tywin, hid under Casterly Rock during the rebellion. <sighs> and in what is the greatest moment of the series for me, for Tywin, heretofore... He sends Joff to bed like a toddler. <laughs> and he then scolds Cersei for raising him shittily and dismisses her too. And then it's just uh, just Tywin and Tyrion now. And while he's being hard on Joff, Tywin tells Tyrion that he still holds out hope for him. Uh, that he can grow into being a good king with the right direction. Tywin lays out uh, that he was behind the whole thing. Now going back to the... Uh, going back to what is known as the Red Wedding but kept it quiet, knowing how easily these secrets slip out. But hey, man, the past is the past. Let's move on. What he wants to talk about are two things, not the Red Wedding. Oberyn Martell and the post-war spoils. On Oberyn, briefly, two baddies here. Doran, whom the reader hasn't met yet, would have been much easier to deal with. However, the justice he will give to Oberyn is Sir Amory Lorch. Who's that? And not the mountain that rides, as Tyrion had been assuming. Again... Loosely, Sir Amory, supposedly, acted of his own accord, without direction, and killed Elia Martell and the kids. That's what happened. Nah, dude, seriously, that's what happened. That's what you're gonna, That's the story we're sticking with. Sir Amory Lorch, acting on his own, doing these terrible, nefarious deeds. Mm. Here he is, Oberyn, except guess what? He's already dead. So, glad you got your revenge. On the spoils front... Emmon Frey gets Riverrun, Lancel and Davin Lannister will wed Freys, and Joy, another Lannister, will wed a son of Walders. Roos is named Warden of the North and gets Arya Stark. Wait, as Finker says what? Arya Stark we just read got axed in the head. Yes, confirmed, Arya Stark. Perhaps Roos did know that she was her pay. Anyway, I don't know where that's going. In the end, eventually, Winterfell will go to Tyrion's son by Sansa, so... Tyrion, get with the whoopee-making already. To which Tyrion replies, in a moment of wit, as I can find the page and read it. And when do you imagine Sansa will be at her most fertile? Before or after I tell her how we murdered her mother and her brother? (laughs) And that's how the chapter ends. Before. Yeah, probably before. (laughs) Probably before. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Joff 
Wow, balls. Yeah, gotta wonder who's been whispering in his ear. Yeah. It's not in Cersei's best interest to give Joffrey, like, a spine. Yeah, it's a good question. Hmm. Hmm. Kind of, you know what that kind of sounds like? That kind of sounds like Tyrion telling Joffrey, never bring up Ares around Tywin. <laughs> and Joffrey being like, never, challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Or, I mean, two... go ahead. I was, I was going to say there's two big moments that I can think of where Joffrey kind of surprises everybody, including his mother, with an outburst. One being this and uh on a grander scale the other being uh when ned got beheaded yeah so you mm-hmm. have to wonder if the same whisperer is mm-hmm. uh is, is whispering play? in his ear yeah. yeah possible but we are unanimously agreed that it's not joffrey taking oh his own initiative oh my gosh joffrey <laughs> joffrey oh you dumb bag of wig hair <laughs> You just, I'm just trying to remember how I first reacted, and I, I just must have just like been shaking my head and smiling, like, "Oh, you are so screwed." Yeah, yeah. It's like watching in slow motion as your best friend makes a mistake, except he's not your best friend. You hate him and are reveling in his ultimate destruction. Whoa, scary! Confession uh, um, time. Oh, I'm totally talking about Joff, specific. not my best friend. <laughs> Um, and then I, I like how Kevin out. Lannister drags him away, like yeah, the king. Mm-hmm. And Kevin Lannister's like, eh, I'm gonna listen to my brother, like I always do. He's yeah. dragging him away by the arm. Uh-huh. I take all of my negotiating lessons from Tywin. Never mm. let him see you sweat. Treat them like children. And oh yeah, make sure your mutton chops are trimmed. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, there's there's one interesting bit in there. Uh, wherein Tyrion is questioning the uh, nobility, the correctness of killing them at dinner, at the at the red wedding, and George dips into the age old question of uh, ends justifying the means. Uh, and Tywin says, "Is it more noble to kill ten thousand in a battle than a dozen at dinner?" I don't know. I, that's a question that always fa- that always uh, interests me. Mm-hmm. I you you could argue that he saved thousands of lives by doing this betrayal. The the realm can go back to peace and safety now. Remember all the small folk that are dying because mm-hmm. of the pillaging going around in all the lands and it's not just Lannister forces that are doing it, right? Northern mm-hmm. forces are participating in the pillaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a small, very small boon, Tywin gets to win. <laughs> Tywin yeah, Tywinning with... again. With that, this is this is a definition of tie winning. When you are winning <laughs> with without bearing the responsibility of any of the seedy actions yeah. that took place to get you that win, yeah. because all that guest right stuff sits solely on Walder Frey's sold shoulders. Yet Tywin profits everything from it. That is tie winning, my friends. Yeah. That is tie yeah. winning. Yeah, he he very you know as this chapter kind of paints he he kind of deftly avoided taking on any of the risk right. or any of the repercussions of doing this, um, and still got what he wanted, and, and even and even had, had to give up basically nothing. Yeah, the uh, the spoils that he hands out, you know, Emmon Frey gets River Run. Well, who's Emmon Frey married to? Yeah, uh, Tywin's sister. Tywin's sister. <laughs> Right, so you could argue actually that River Run. You could actually argue that he's gaining because uh, 
Davin and Lancel are marrying into the phrase and getting access to those lands and stuff. Getting access, more access into the riverlands. Yeah. Right. So exactly. Yeah, you could actually. He's he's not losing or conceding anything at all. Exactly. Um, you know, I mean, he did. I guess you know, Roos gets to be warden of the North, which um, they want a warden of the North, so he's not really giving up anything there either, right? Anything yeah. Else so, in this chapter? so good. Sorry, I was gonna circle back around to your point that the small sacrifice is for the greater good. Oh, yeah. But is it the greater good? Well, according to him, it is. He thinks it is. I don't think. I don't think. Um, I don't. I don't think Tywin knows that that the Lannisters are evil. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> to him, they're the good guys. So yeah, yeah to him, it's, it's more noble standing. to end this quickly. Yeah, and yeah. I don't feel like Tywin particularly is a warmonger. We read in the World of Ice and Fire that he did a lot of good during peacetime, at least according to the Maester that wrote that book. Um, yeah, amazing. Yeah. A very biased but account, but yeah, basically but sucks definitely... on Tywin's nuts for a while in that in the world of Empire. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, but apparently he did a lot of good things during peacetime and basically ran the realm while Ares went off the deep end. Uh, so I don't I don't feel like Tywin relishes war and desires it all the time, but in the end, is he really doing this for the good of the realm or is he doing it for the good of the Lannisters? I think he thinks of the same thing. Mm. I would agree. I think he's fucking wrong, but I think he thinks they're the same thing. All right. Should we move on? Guys... Oh, Tywin, Tywin POS moment, just real quick. We're talking about bad fathers. We've had a lot of that on the Twitter lately. You guys oh. have been Twitter silent, but it's actually been quite a topic of debate on Twitter lately. Oh, yeah, about so bad when, someone doesn't I... agree that Randall Tarley is the worst father. Randall... And he's not. I figured this out the day after Crasters we passed entered in the top three. Yeah, yeah. The, the answer to the question was the only other father to characters in the chapter we were discussing it in the father to both the baby in the chapter and to uh what's her nuts what's her gilly 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 <laughs> is the <laughs> same is the same man Here, craster is the answer to this question craster gives half of his children to scary ice demons and doesn't know what happens to them or maybe does know what happens to them and maybe that makes it even worse and the other half he rapes and marries and he does it he does it as much as he can he produces as many children as he can he is the worst father by far yeah yeah in the definition There's... of father i would say he's the worst but in the definition of fatherhood i'd say he's not even trying uh because he makes his daughters and okay you know what <laughs> The semantics of this are not important. I, I, I kind of feel He's like, and and yeah, Craster's terrible. But and, and I don't, and I'm not saying I still think Randall's the worst. I think there's arguments to be made in favor of both. Um, <laughs> Craster somehow is deranged enough to kind of justify at least to himself what he's doing. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. for some way, he feels like this is an okay thing to do. Whereas I feel like Randall is a dick to Sam just to be a dick. Oh, I don't think so. I think it's the same thing. He, he's been brought up in a world where he expects sons to behave in a certain way. And he feels slighted that the gods gave him a son that doesn't behave that way. I, and I, think, I can agree with that, but anyways, dicks, what were we talking about? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, Tywin dick moment. Yes. Where he's talking about the rape of Aaliyah 
And um, he says to Tyrion, the rape, even you will not accuse me of giving that command. <laughs> Remembering what Tywin did with yeah. Aisha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cold. <laughs> yeah. Tywin. You're such a... And they made such strides in this chapter, Tywin and Tyrion did, I thought. Did you notice Ty... yeah. how they how they kind of ganged up on Joffrey together? <laughs> Go back and read the, the part when Joffrey freaks out. They kind of like play off Tywin and Tyrion kind of play off each other for a couple paragraphs there. And it's brilliant how they do it. They've got great chemistry. They think so <laughs> much alike sometimes. And it's mm. yeah. It's sad that Tywin won't sit back and recognize that. Or maybe, like we've argued before, he does recognize that. Maybe that makes him hate Tyrion even more. Yeah. And just about the uh, Taisha thing, or however we're pronouncing her name these days. I got Taisha Tywin, Tywin in his head feels it's perfectly justifiable to order a commoner to be raped, but mm-hmm. finds yeah. it extremely distasteful and wouldn't want anybody to think that he had ordered a queen being raped. A queen to be raped. Yeah, I actually yeah, going back to the Sander Queen thing. I actually don't think Tywin was trying to be a dick to Tyrion there. I think he literally did not make the connection yeah. you did. Agreed. Because Tisha is nothing. But this woman was noble and a queen. Okay. I'll buy that. So you're saying that wasn't a dig? I don't think it was. But it wasn't meant to be a dig. But I think that makes him a worse person, not a better one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Like it just makes him yeah. an elitist. Yeah. Alright. Let's uh, do Davos After Dark. Cool. Davos After Dark. Uh thanks everyone for joining us. It's time to enter the realm of spoilery stuff in Davos After Dark. Uh so this is like the official. But you know warning. what we're gonna talk about this time. Yeah, you're gonna know what we're talking about this time. If you don't want to be spoiled officially, just move along. Move it along. Uh move along. Uh-huh. And, uh, and and we'll see you uh, in three weeks uh, for more Storm of Swords. Uh, that'll be Davos 5, John 7, Bran 4, Danny 5, and Tyrion 7. That's chapters 54 to 58, according to Wikibice and Fire. We'll see you in three weeks for that. Go grab Matt's music. Say it every time. Uh, we're Davos Fingers uh, at uh, .bandcamp.com. Uh, go find it. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, and now it's time for Davos of a Dark. And oh, also, don't forget, after Davos After Dark... Stick around, because after the episode, we have a segment of Films Get Fingered, where we'll vigorously finger Captain America. Civil War. <laughs> yeah, I said it. Duh, it might take duh. longer than we either expect or like. Yes. I could have talked about it for like three more hours. I'm not even going to lie to you. <laughs> three would have been pushing it for me, but uh, yeah, I enjoy I enjoyed the discussion. Anyway, back to Davos After Dark. <laughs> Davos After Dark. Someday we'll start another podcast, guys. Someday. Someday. And it'll just be me sitting in my chair going, oh. <laughs> just <sighs> sighing and groaning. I know this feels, friend. I know this feels. <laughs> Until a new Star Wars movie comes out. <laughs> then you have my full attention. We can placate uh, you with some things that interest you a little more, Matt. We can try. <laughs> Oh, this is a good one. Okay, so friends of the podcast, <laughs> listeners, this episode actually inspired Matt to such a degree. Oh my gosh. Oh. That he wrote an essay. Yeah. He wrote a full-fledged five-page brilliant analysis of 
Tywin and Ruse Bolton's shenanigans that brought about the Red Wedding. And it's beautiful. And I love it. And it's a no Matt, citation us... used at all in the essay. Matt, uh... you want to read the entire thing or just give us a rundown? It's your choice. Chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I one thing that I've has always puzzled me is the web of red wedding conspirators and how this all came about on the surface. It seems like Tywin masterminded the whole thing. Uh, but I feel like once you start reading and looking into it, there's so much more going on. And, and we uncovered a lot of those uh, during our reread. And that just puzzled me even more It's like, Oh, well, it seemed like Roos was doing this really early on, or it seemed like, you know, something was happening with Walter Frey here. So maybe this isn't as simple as I thought. And I went to I went online to kind of read about it a little more and see what others had said, and no one said anything that really satisfied me. So I just decided <laughs> to do it myself. <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, gosh, I don't want to make this too long. So uh, I thought that's, that that's the history of most authors, though. <laughs> like, well, nobody else has written this. Yes, I got to do it myself. <laughs> well, and I thought it was like one o'clock in the morning when I started doing it. And I thought, I'm just going to type out my thoughts real quick so I don't forget them. And two hours later, <laughs> I'm sending an email to Brooke and Scott. Read this. Friends of the cast, Matt has a family and a full-time job. <laughs> That's why my writing happens at one in the morning and not during normal working hours. Yeah. Who needs sleep? Any of my research or studying done for this podcast happens after about 10 o'clock at night. Me too. And goes till anywhere from about 2 to 3 in the morning. Me but, too. Hey, you feel me. Um, More so often quick run than you'd like. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like it. I like it just fine. From you. Yeah, you feel I, it's, me. Just, it's just that I'm insatiable. It just happens more often than you'd like. Oh my gosh. Yeah, there's okay. some times where I just want to go to bed. <laughs> This is sounding oddly familiar. Oh, boy. Just I love imagining you two fondling each other at work. <laughs> We'd be fine. Yeah, get into this damn essay already. Okay, so um, Roose Bolton is the first person that, that struck my eye as his kind of arc seems to put him in conflict with Rob Stark very early on. And what really opened my eyes to this, and I think a, a lot of other people, is an essay that Brendan Beefish, our friend over at Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, he writes a whole essay on Bruce, Bruce Bolton's early kind of misgivings with Rob Stark. Uh, you know, the history between the Starks and the Boltons enmity goes back, I don't know, scad thousands of years. Um, yeah, they're they're historically like the thorn in the side of the Starks as far as spats go in the north. They're kind right. of constantly infighting and stuff. Yeah, yeah, stuff always going on between the two of them. Um, and he outlines, I thought, very insightfully how uh, going into the whole tactics and strategies of battles, how it would appear that Roos is undermining Rob, however subtly, uh, from the very beginning from that battle at the Green Fork that we read about way back in, in Game of Thrones. So with that in mind, um, it appears to me that Roos might have contacted Tywin first, not with plans of a red wedding, not with 
I want to kill Rob Stark and here's how I want to do it. I'm not saying that Roose Bolton is the mastermind behind the Red Wedding, but I am saying that he may have gotten this ball rolling of conspirators conspiring against Rob Stark by contacting Tywin and saying, hey, you know, we've got a common enemy here. I want Rob Stark dead. You want Rob Stark dead. Just remember that, you know, mm-hmm. and initiated that communication. So that's is, the first thing. It Comments is also, yeah, just a little. It is also, um, they don't mention it a lot, but but so Roos goes into that battle. Um, this is the, the battle there where, where he gets defeated and just kind of limps away, right? And you don't hear, like, anything. For like a book and a half from Roos. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of hanging out there. And Tywin's also just kind of hanging out in that general area. And and they're just kind of not doing a whole lot. And so it, there's... I'll just say there is definitely the opportunity for people to be going back and forth with messages while these people are vaguely in the same area and not fighting. Oh, very good. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Good catch. So who knows when um, they actually did start talking, uh, but certainly by the time Roos sent people to Duskendale, where he, when he sent the the Glovers to Duskendale to to basically give them a chance at revenge, um, Tywin knew about that. Uh, that's documented. So they were at least in touch by then. Um, so next, so we've got Roos and Tywin at least talking, uh, next in the whole web is Roos initiating contact with the phrase as well. There's opportunity for that, at least at, um, what we talked about earlier in the cast when they first stop at the twins to cross, right? Um, we know that at some point, um, Roos marries Walda Frey. And at first we thought that it's just Walder wanting to get rid of daughters and stuff and everything, but <laughs> um, uh, marry off daughters to lords. But, uh, you know, this could have been the the sealing of a deal, uh, sealing it by marriage, that the Boltons and the Freys were going to work together to bring down Rob Stark. Now, why would the Freys want to bring down Rob Stark? I think that it goes back to their reputation of just wanting to be on the side of victors. Yeah. I would I would add to your 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 statement there. Sealing the deal doesn't necessarily mean they have to do anything at that moment. They can betray mm-hmm. that that alliance too. <laughs> they can kind of like you like you're yep. saying uh by picking the side that the whoever looks like they're coming out on top they can betray Rob or they can betray Roos, just depending on which way it goes. Which way it keep, goes, yes. Yeah, so the options open. They're I, keeping a foot in both camps. Right. I would also say, this part of the theory that you've written, it, it all hinges to me on timing. I don't I don't know... I don't know when the, the Walder-Roos wedding happened. I don't know when the deal was made. There's a lot of, there's a lot of weird timing in there. Again, Roos is kind of vaguely a few hundred miles away from the twins for like a book and a half. At any point, he could have gone back to the twins and had a discussion with them. We don't get any notes that that happened. Not that I remember, but... They're just married. It's just, yeah, it just happens that they're married, and the timing of when this deal would have been struck is very interesting to me. I don't have a lot to weigh in on what I think, but 
it it changes yeah, I mean, a lot it, of the it changes a lot of the equation depending on when this happened. It could have started as early as when they were at the twins trying to get across. Yeah. Um, or as late as, like you said, when he's kind of hiding out. Um, but again, with with Walder considering Roos Bolton, like why would you even consider siding with Roos Bolton? And I think it goes back to the phrase, wanting to be on the side of victors, yes, but also wanting something more. They want the Riverlands. I think they've always been kind of jealous of the Tollies. They've always felt slightly slighted. We've talked about them before, how they always feel like they should be held in higher regard than they actually are, right? Mm -hmm. And if they support Rob through and through to the end of this, they remain vassals because the Tollies have sworn allegiance to the Starks. Other river lords have as well. So if the Starks win, the Tollies remain in charge of the Riverlands and things just go on as they've always gone, right? Um, but if Roos can come in and dispatch Rob Stark and get the Tollies out of the picture, that opens the door for the phrase to then move in and take control of the Riverlands. Uh, we do know that Walder Frey meant to keep Catelyn Stark alive. That was made clear in the Tyrion chapter, although we didn't really discuss it in the meat of that chapter. Uh, Tywin says Walder Frey had meant to keep Catelyn Stark around, and I wonder if this was perhaps to force a marriage that would give him River Run, or maybe to use as a hostage later to subject mm -hmm. Edmure Tully. I don't know, but um, oh yeah, she could have been really useful. Yeah. Uh, and we get evidence of Bolton and Frey's being allies as early as Roos being at Heron Hall. So that kind of helps our timeline maybe a tiny bit scad, but not a lot. When Roos is holding that council while he's naked and being leeched. <laughs> that was so weird. <laughs> um, the only other people there of note besides Arya and like a maester are a whole slew of Frey's. That's interesting that he's surrounded himself with just them. I really like your idea of... Uh, Walder and Ruse um, sending messages through Walda and her letters to Ruse, which yeah. he doesn't really appreciate. He just like reads them and throws them in the fire, right? <laughs> or gives them to Arya to burn. I don't remember what it is, but burn this letter. But uh, I, I, that's probably nothing. That's probably just me grasping at straws. But no way, I love it. Are, her, her letters are like, I still love you so much. I'm still just waiting for you. And I can kind of see in that a bit of a code of Walder saying, we still got your back, buddy. We're just waiting for you. Uh, you know, let us know what we got to do. And then Walder, and then he burns the letter afterwards instead of keeping him in his diary or something tucked away to read back in the moments when he's missing her. <laughs> I'm down with it. It's interesting that it would be a one-way communication. If this were really a spy exchange, you'd think he would write back an equally promising note. Dear Fat Walder. <laughs> My new wife. I, I hold you too. in great esteem, and I still, you know, I'll be I'll he, be home soon. Dear. He, sh he should be reassuring the other way, which right. maybe again, maybe that's part of his game too. Uh, is also I've, keeping them I've, guessing. But I fully admit that I have been binge watching the show Turn on Netflix, yeah. which is a story about George Washington's spy ring that he had during the Revolutionary War. So been getting a lot of like secret encrypted letter stuff entering my head lately from that show. Mm. Could be part part of that. Okay, so that's the phrase stuff. Any yays or nays to that? Roos and um, Walder in the end. 
initiated some sort of contact early on. I think Roos probably told Tywin about that. Hey, I'm the 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 phrase are in, but reading especially the phrase reaction to um, what Roos was saying at Heron Hall, I don't think the phrase know that Roos is talking to Tywin yet. If that makes sense. Yeah, Roos may not be sharing that information with Waller yet. Uh, or or sorry with uh, with. With yeah. the phrase, he might have right. told Walder, but none of the other phrases. Right, know. correct, yeah. So there's layers to this. Again, I'd say just the the most important part to me that you outlined there with the phrase is motive and their motive to get mm-hmm. more. This is a better deal for them if it works out. If, if it works, exactly. if indeed Roos told the phrase that I've got a bigger fish on the line here, Tywin's involved. Then, then the risk even drops. I mean, don't forget that Rob is in a very risky war here. The odds of him winning were low from the start. And so the phrase might be looking at this as a better opportunity with less risk from the beginning. Forget, forget mm-hmm. Rob's betrayal, which I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything. I think you're about to get there anyway, Matt, but yeah, they might be looking at this as not that risky compared to what they're currently in bed with, with Rob anyway. Right. Yes. Go yes, ahead. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll get to that part too. Uh, but I do think the lack of risk is what really helped push the the phrase over the edge and commit. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So, you know, while Roos is doing his whole thing, and I'm making Roos out to be this master and commander, and I really don't think it's that. I think he was just feeling people out at this point, seeing who would join with him, who he could rely on. And and so he's talking at this point with Tywin and Walder, but I don't think they've planned out a red wedding yet. So meanwhile, Rob's over in the Westerlands, right? And he takes the crag and gets the Westerlings, right? So my theory, as I outline in this less in this quote unquote essay, um, is that Sybil Spicer, Jane's uh, mom and current lady of the crag, because the husband Gawain or Gawain, Gawain, whatever you want to call him, he's a POW right now. Um, she's uh, aware. Can I just interrupt you for a second? Hmm. Can you please pronounce it the crag. The crag. The crag. It's all craggy and moist. Jane. <laughs> Jamie says later, Jamie describes their house as impoverished. Now, obviously, to someone as rich as Jamie Lannister, you know, anything's impoverished. But it appears that the crag is not doing so well financially and kind of in the standing of Westerosi standards are not high. And Sybil Spicer seems to be kind of that jealous type. Um, So my theory is that when Rob Stark takes temporary residence in her home, injured and everything, she devises a plot using Jane uh, uh, to, uh, of course, you know, bang Rob and therefore tell Tywin about this and get some type of reward from Tywin to improve their standing. Now, on the other hand, it could have been Tywin reaching out to Sybil. Yeah, it could but have you got to remember that, like, they don't have phones, right? So, like... Right. So he, by the time he hears about Rob there and writes to her. Yeah. Says, hey, Rob might be coming for you if he does do this. And sending it to a compromised castle that Rob now controls. (laughs) With a maester who might be getting messages that they intercept. Which brings up another complication to my whole theory here is, is if it's hard enough to get a message in, it would be hard to get a message out, right? For Sybil to get something out to Tywin. 
Um, however, I do think that that might be uh, more easily managed than the alternative. So mm-hmm. I just I just feel like Ty, like you guys are saying that Tywin saying, "Hey, if Rob happens to come to your castle, do this." It just feels like it's awfully shaky for a Tywin Lannister type plan. You know, that oh. sounds like a real Marvel movie <clears throat> plot. I don't, I don't know. Actually, I'm 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 going in with the uh, I'm going all in with the tinfoil on this one. So the crag is on the very edge. It's it's like a sea castle, right? It's on the edge of edge of the Westerlands. Rob has been marauding through, taking whatever he pleases through the Westerlands for a while, you know, weeks, right? Mm-hmm. I very easily could see Tywin reaching out ahead of time, saying he's going to get to you when he gets there. Right. Don't put up a huge fight. Let him in. Put and tell all your men to aim it at him to wound. You know, I mean, maybe it's not that tricky, but you know, let him in basically. Let him take control. Become friends with him and and see this through. I could I could see that happening. He's got weeks to get this letter in the in the Raven Mail, while Rob is still getting to the crag. He knows it's been noted not just by by Jamie calling him impoverished. It's noted by Rob when he comes back to the twins with his new family uh, that they're in poor shape. They're a noble yeah, house with long lineage. But not a lot going for them, uh, men wise, financial wise, land wise, etc. It so, could happen. The communication would have to come from scouts who would have to travel, right? They'd have to say, "Rob's here's what Rob's troop movements are like right now," and then Tywin would have to strategically plan from there and everything, and then get the letter out. Um, so I can this I'm I'm not completely sure about, but I can see what we know of Sabelle. Later, we get a glimpse of her when she's having her conversation with Jamie. I can see her with her self-interest. We've talked about self-interest here, what Walder Frey wants, what Roose Bolton wants, what Sabelle Spicer wants is to improve her standing. And so I can see her devising this scheme herself. But You did have, I don't know if you're there yet or not, you did have one little bit uh, in the theory that I quibbled with. Um, Sybil's part was over after Jane and Rob were married, but you mentioned the moon tea earlier, so I, I think you know that that's not true. I mean, she, she was meddling... After they were married as well, to make sure no air was consumed, uh, conceived. Sure. No, good point. And that should be made clear when I make revisions of this essay, sure. which I will have to do. I'm not trying to um, nitpick, but I, no, guess I, I, but I guess I did. Sorry. No, you're fine. And that's very true. That's a good point that I should make. What I think the point that I was trying to make was that um, Sybil. She wasn't, wasn't directly planning the red directly wedding. planning the red wedding at right. that point. Yeah, yeah. She was definitely still involved in keeping Jane celibate, or yeah. not celibate. Um, Baron, uh, but uh, yeah, but she wasn't planning the red wedding at that point. Uh, elsewise, like she says herself, she would never have sent her son headlong into it right. with Rob or allowed him to go. Right. So we've got Tywin, and now Tywin is kind of turning into uh, not the switchboard operator, mm-hmm. but the puppet master, something like that. Of all of this, he he finds himself talking to Roos. He finds himself talking to Sybil Spicer. And then I think we're going to find out that Walder Frey comes to him and talks to him as well. So that's the next part. So at this point, Tywin, knowing what Sibel's going to do, uh, he could tip Walder off and say, hey, guess what's going to happen? But that doesn't seem very Tywin to me. Tywin seems more like the type that allows things to happen again so that he can kind of shirk responsibility if he needs to. Um, or not be in the crosshairs for things. So I can see him just kind of sitting back, 
allowing the Freys to find out on their own about Jane and just waiting for them to come to him. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Now, remind me, Tywin's at Hall for most of this, right? He's not yet in King's Landing when Rob uh, betrays his vow, or his promise, right? Let's see, that would happen, he was there before Roos. Oh no, it is after them. It would be after, I think. Yeah, he's back, He's, he's at King's Landing, sorry, go ahead. And, um, I was just trying to remember if we remember what Tywin's reaction was when the news of Rob uh, breaking his promise. If we get any sense of what Tywin's reaction was. Right. Maybe we can go back and yeah, look I'll for some. Sorry, go ahead, Matt. But he does say uh, he, there, there's some suppositions that Walder goes to Tywin rather than the other way around. Um, Tywin telling Tyrion in the chapter we covered in this episode, I suppose you would have spared the boy and told Lord Frey you had no need of his allegiance. That just kind of implies to me that he, that Walder came to him, yeah, offering allegiance. Mm. Um, yeah, for sure. And and so now, Tywin finds that Roose is talking to him, the Spicers are talking to him, and Walder Frey is talking to him. Uh, and Walder Frey claims that their actions were purely a response for Rob breaking his oath, right? Walder says, the whole reason that I'm doing this and that I want my revenge is because you broke your oath with me. I would go as so far to say that, no, that was an excuse for Walder to break the elite, the alliance that he had now been wanting to break. Uh, because, um, as we find out in the Bolton's going to Dustin, Bolton sending lovers to Duskendale chapter, um, the phrase are kind of becoming a little disenchanted with Rob's chances. They yeah. say his cause is lost and stuff like that. I think the phrase were wanting out of this alliance anyways, and this was a convenient excuse. Rob breaking it was a convenient excuse for them to break it at that point. Did they Knowing, want out or did they just want to play both sides, though? I think they wanted to play both sides, and this goes back to that security that Scott was talking about, that if they can get on the sides of the Boltons, and then also have the Lannisters there as well. That's security, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, remember that at this point they know that Stannis Baratheon was beaten on the Blackwater. Uh, they also know that Lannisters have allied themselves with the Tyrells, and so victory's looking probably in the eyes of the phrase pretty secure. Yeah. Like it, it's looking like the Lannisters are going to win this war. The North so is also wa- occupied. Um, the North is occupied by Ironborn. Um, it's looking pretty good. Yeah. It went so. it went from uh when maybe when they were talking again, we don't know the absolute timeline, but maybe when they were talking to Roos uh and making the deal to have a foot in both camps, as Matt said, maybe it was fifty fifty then. They're like, This could go either way, let's keep a foot in both camps. Now it's like seventy five twenty five, Rob's gonna lose. Let's mm-hmm. let's put a little bit more of our energy into this camp. Right. Yeah, and there you go. That's pretty much it. Uh, so we haven't talked a ton about Tywin at this point, but it does seem that Tywin starts to kind of almost be the overseer of all this. If you guys, I don't know if like it, if you ever met those people either at work or like in school where you're working on like a group project together and there's just one person that when they come into the group, even if it's late, they seem to like just naturally take charge of the group. You know, those kind of people I'm talking about. Whether it's annoying or you just like respect them because they've got some quality that just you look to them as a leader. I feel like Tywin's that kind of guy that when he gets involved in something, 
mm-hmm. he's just automatically the leader of that thing. Do you know yep. what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I definitely feel that him even providing really high-level oversight, it doesn't appear that he participated in the logistical planning of the wedding. In fact, Merritt Frey in his epilogue chapter, his one POV, says that the Red Wedding was primarily planned by Walder, Ryman Frey, and Roose Bolton. Um, maybe Merritt didn't know what Tywin's involvement was, and so that's why he thinks that. But uh, it, it appears that Tywin wasn't like hire these guys to play in the band and I'll <laughs> serve say, this at the feast. Well, I'll say this. If he wasn't involved, then Walder and Roos are doing their best in the execution of the Red Wedding to make it seem like the Lannisters were the architects and the ones behind it all. From mm-hmm. ve- from a very blatant Jamie Lannister sends his regards uh, as as Roos stabs Rob, which Jamie Lannister had asked Roos to send his regards the last time they spoke. Um, that's not not really really here nor there. He didn't have to do it, but he did it, and that sends a message to anyone who does live through that from the north. This was the Lannisters. Also, the playing of the Reigns of Castamere. They could have played anything. They right. played the Reigns of Castamere, which is a Lannister song, and it very much hints at them being the hand moving everything. So it's if if in fact Tywin wasn't involved in the planning, this is some misdirection from Walder and Roos to even say Tywin's behind all of this for some reason. Well, and you know, Tywin does have a bit of an ego too. I wouldn't be surprised if he threw in a few details to be recognized as being a part of it. But Mm -hmm. again, kind of being able to slough off that responsibility factor of actually breaking, you know, the law of guest right and doing the deed, right? Yeah. And I do and... think that he's a major player in that his rewards that he offered were probably what gave, uh, what encouraged people like Walder Frey to go the distance. Yes. You know, offering River Run and stuff. Sorry, Brooke, you were going to say something. No, just that I agree that with your analogy that, that uh, Tywin is more like a CEO and he wouldn't worry about the details. He just delegates and expects things to get things, like expects things to get done. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, I can see him throwing in, Hey, I got a good song <laughs> that you can play. <laughs> and but make it, sure your it, shitty it's... musicians have stopped playing by the time this song comes on. Cause I want it to sound good. Yeah. I think those, <laughs> those theatrics really feel like Walterish, but, um, uh, I just look at, at the way that, um, Tywin delegates to Tyrion and Kevin, he doesn't tell Tyrion, you know, how to be the master of coin. He just says, get it done. Like, yeah. he, he knows Tyrion's capabilities and doesn't worry about the details. Yeah. So, I think this is that's how he operates. And But he, he like a good CEO, he recognizes good people. Or, you know, people who, not good people, <laughs> people who are good at bad things. Yeah, getting stuff done. and Yeah. And like we talked about, the end, the conclusion of my, again, quote, unquote, essay is the is the prizes that Tywin doles out and how we talked about in the cast, they end up benefiting Tywin almost as much as they end up benefiting mm, the, recipients. the recipients, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the phrase gets river run, but Gemma Frey is Tywin's sister, so Tywin kind of gets river run. And it's kind of widely viewed that she runs the marriage, that she wears the pants. <laughs> um, Roose Bolton's named Warden of the North, given Winterfell, as well as Arya Stark. And we later find out 
that Tywin really had no intention of keeping Roos as Warden of the North. He wanted to send Roos up there to fight the Ironborn, wear them both out, uh, so that he could swoop in later and put Tyrion and Sansa in Winterfell. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rolf Spicer was given Castamere. You know, it wasn't a big deal to Tywin. They didn't need it anyways. So give it to him and you know, maybe they can start paying taxes to Casterly Rock again and they mm-hmm. get a little income off of that. But, yeah. but in the end, so Tywin's not as intricately involved. There were definitely other players moving pieces and all of that, but I do still see him as the primary kind of overseer uh, of the conspirators in the Red Wedding. But that's yeah, kind I, of it. The CEO comparison is uh, apt maybe depending on the CEO experience you have. <laughs> I think none of this would have happened without him. He was the key piece that made sure any of this happened, but he Agreed. wasn't the one making it all happen. Yep. Yeah, great, good, good analysis, Matt. Like very admirable. Yeah, I guess. I like. I love it. Well, um, I, I have some quibbles, and I want to digest it more and have some conversations with you and stuff. But of course, you do. I know. I wouldn't be me. Of course, if you're I didn't. quibbly. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're the captain of the SS Quibble. <laughs> Better than Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> I think that's a good discussion for Davos After Dark. There's there's one more point I want to make or I want to discuss. When Rob dies, his final words are Grey Wind. Mm-hmm. And when Jon Snow dies, his final words are Ghost. Is there a connection there? Do you think that maybe Rob like warged in his last moments i i I know scad has some thoughts on this (laughs) i'd be interested to hear um well my my thoughts are they're not founded in anything it just you know we don't we don't rob is the only stark other than rickon that we don't get a pov from um you know we all know rickon is mega powerful and probably the most powerful warg in the family yeah yeah i said it Lots of evidence for that, yeah. <laughs> Tons of it. Uh, but we don't know about Rob. We know he has a super strong relationship, like, in the field with Grey Wind. You know, the whole finding the trail, and he's at his side all the time, and the stories that get told, sure, they're embellished, but there's a super strong relationship there. But we don't know anything about whether he's warging, he's, you know, acting as a warg, um, you know, in, in that relationship. But he could be... He could be the strongest warg of them. We just don't get to see it in a POV. And it's it's interesting to think. I don't think people talk about that that much. It's it's mm. just interesting. Um, it I, I don't I don't know. You know, there isn't any evidence for it, really. It's just something to speculate about. And the fact that he is willing to put that relationship aside a little bit when the Westlings come into the picture is perhaps evidence against him having that warging relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, you know, I, I guess the counter argument is John and Arya both also put their relationships aside, and they seem to be gifted if unpracticed um, right. works. So, I don't know. There, there's there's some interesting stuff there. Yeah, I think it is interesting. And I was thinking about it. I spent like two car rides thinking about that after you brought it up in your notes about Rob perhaps warging, and I guess one question I'd ask is when would he have the opportunity to warg he's pretty busy yeah well and he's always and he's and he's always surrounded by people too remember when bran wargs into um 
summer, he kind of goes into like kind of a comatose state, right? Yeah. Where they have to like kind of feed him and everything. Yeah. And I feel like his his guards and stuff who are always around him would be like, "What's uh, Rob doing? Dude. Yeah. Uh, what is he? What's going on?" In that way, the connection to John is interesting because John's the same way. John is very much right. surrounded by people who are interested in his behavior, and therefore John and Arya too. Um, their warg, their warg personalities only come when they're dreaming, when they're sleeping, when, they're when they sleeping. wouldn't be expected yeah. to be around people, right? So, so yeah, that's that's what I came up with too. Is that you know, same like exactly what you're saying is Arya and John seem to have it happen when they're sleeping, um, and maybe Rob does too. And and maybe Brooke, to your question, is it significant that Jon Snow says ghost at the end and Rob says Greywind at the end? Maybe there's something that happens to these unpracticed wargs when they're about to die where their wolf, their special wolf, actually reaches out to them and says, hey, Mm -hmm. I'm here for you. I'm here. Come live your second life in me, like Baramir says. And what would make that more tragic is that if Rob made it into Grey Wind, Grey Wind dies, you know. I don't. I guess I don't know the minute by minute chronology of the Red Wedding. If Grey Wind died first, or if Rob died first. Uh, yeah, we don't know. I kind of always interpreted it as when Rob said Grey Wind, he felt Grey Wind dying. Like mm-hmm. no Grey Wind. Oh, that could very well be. That's yeah. interesting. So, oh, so you're implying that you think Ghost is dead too? Um, I, no. I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, that makes it even more tragic if Rob, or kind of ironic too, Rob wargs into Greywind. Greywind dies, so Rob dies too, and then the heads are sewn. The the <laughs> heads and bodies are connected, yeah. just like Rob and Greywind were connected for that very short amount of time. Yeah. That makes it even more tragic and sad. Oh, poetic. Erm mm-hmm. really just can't resist making things super violent and terrible. <laughs> The whole desecration of Robin Greywind's body just really is just just a delicious cherry on top of that entire Sunday. Yeah. Good points, Scad. Anything else you guys want to talk about? I feel like Scad came up with a few good topics, and I feel guilty that I've kind of dominated this Davos After Dark. I don't think I came up with a single topic. But I don't think there's anything that can't be discussed through future events. Agreed. Just looking through, I don't think that we're completely overlooking anything yeah I, at some point i would like yeah, to talk about like, Roos. yes Arya's mm-hmm. not dead i'd like to talk about Roos and the succession plan and whether he knows about the letter that was sent uh but we don't need to talk about it today we need yeah. to talk about it later okay. uh, are we going to publish that thing i gotta do some major revising of it yeah all right i, I want to add in like quotes and then i need to like cite stuff and <laughs> i got a lot of work to do yeah give credit to people and things like that yeah. Right, <laughs> things that we never do. Sorry, everyone that we steal from. I Guys. read somewhere on the internet that yeah. this is <laughs> yeah. a thing. Right. We're awful at that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, the fact that we even wrote something down though is pretty significant. <laughs> we we used the wrong we used the wrong noun. This uh, is no time for humility, my friend. You wrote it down. Great yeah. job. Great. So, um, excellent episode. Let's wrap this up, gentlemen. This is Brooks saying goodnight, and um, I've never been to a wedding as exciting as the Red Wedding. <laughs> I would say there's been lots of alcohol involved in the weddings I've been to, 
but fortunately, no deaths. Not yet, anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Matt signing off uh, just with a quote that I was thinking about the Red Wedding and this song came up on the shuffle on my iPod and I thought it interesting that a song about life came up as I was thinking about death. So this is Matt signing off with a quote from the band The Rocket Summer said, life will write the words, but you choose your own melody. Good one. Chew on that. Mine is way less poetic, but uh, partially from Matt's essay, uh, one of the section titles, and from Billy Idol, the Billy Idol. It's a nice day for a red wedding. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. So guys, now let's jump into a returning segment, Films Get Fingered. Films Get! Films Get! Films Get! Films Get Fingered! To be clear, uh, everybody, Films Get Fingered has nothing overtly to do with A Song of Ice and Fire. In fact, nothing at all to do with A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, We just are nerds and like talking about other stuff since we're friends. And so we decided to throw these in every now and then, and parallels may and... Uh, do arise between A Song of Ice and Fire and what we cover sometimes, but they're purely coincidental. We lasted the segment in episode 36, if you want to go check out our first films, Get Fingered. That was for Star Wars The Force Awakens, and we had a blast. In it, I think I told Matt to fuck off? I don't know. <laughs> and it, it was a fun one. Now we're back to yak about Captain America Civil War. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, run. It's going to be full of spoilers, spoilerville. USA. Uh, so if you're if you're leaving us now, and really, 
Brooke's got some gems coming up, I think, because she loved this film. It would mm-hmm. be a shame if you left. So thanks for, for listening, and we'll see you in three weeks. But stick around if you want to hear us talk about Captain America. Guys, I came up with the Films Get Fingered rating system a couple weeks ago, and uh, <laughs> threw it past the fingers. I think I think they liked it. Uh, so it's it's a it's a reasonably standard five star system, right? But with a finger fucking twist. <laughs> so three fingers, because there's three of us. If you give it three fingers, that means you loved it. If you give it two fingers. It means you liked it. If you give it one finger, you didn't really like it. If you give it the middle finger, that's like, fuck this movie. If you give it the shocker, and I'll let you guys Google that, but don't do it at work if you don't know what it is. If you give it the shocker, it means you want to physically harm this film. It was that bad. <laughs> that's that's our rating system. So three fingers like, loved take it. take a copy of the DVD and break it? <laughs> yes. Or, or like harm the filmmaker? Um... Up oh. to your interpretation. Well, okay. as <laughs> appealing as <laughs> rock shocking the Russos, <laughs> who are the directors of this film, is to me. <laughs> so the rating system doesn't really translate for you in this case, because yeah, I don't no, know if you can I'm... really give them the shocker. Because <laughs> I'm so in love with this movie, so it gets a full three fingers. It gets thoroughly fingered by Brooke. Just. Just really enjoyed the film. It really, I had high expectations. I'm very much uh, committed to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This whole, like, it, it almost feels like a TV series at this point. You know, with the Iron Man movies, the Thor movies, the Captain America movies, and totally. all of the, the you know, Ant-Man and Guardians of the Galaxy. Now there's going to be Doctor Strange, which there's been a lot of controversy about Doctor Strange. I'm actually kind of looking forward to it. Like, benedict cumberbatch (laughs) i enjoy his weird face so just basically i'm in i'm in um but that also makes me you know that sort of high investment makes me uh, apprehensive and and critical like like are they going to actually deliver and they delivered in my mind on this film so three enthusiastic fingers all right matt oh i'm next huh oh i can go next uh, I'll, 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 I'm a little more reserved. I, I I gave it two fingers. I did like it. I liked it a lot. I didn't love it. I thought I, there were, to me, there were some flaws that pulled pulled one finger back. I'm a little <laughs> less committed to the act than Brooke is. Um, but uh, yeah, I liked it. Again, I, I, I'm I'm a big fan of the of the universe. Um, I've I've th- seen I think all of the films um, in that in that universe, um, and I enjoy I enjoy it generally. I have. I have big concerns with action films a lot of the times, and, and this punched a few of those buttons, and we'll go into it a little bit, which pulled it down from the three fingers to me, but uh, two fingers. I liked it. One and a half fingers for me. <laughs> so like a finger and a knuckle? <laughs> yeah. Got like, well, it was, like, it was like a whole finger, yeah, and then like up to a knuckle. Up, up to the knuckle, like closest, yeah, second knuckle. Okay. Closest okay. to the palm. All right. <laughs> Uh, so are we gonna? So are we just announcing kind of our ratings now, and then we're gonna go into more of a discussion? Yeah, yeah let's go. Let's go okay. discuss it. I probably yeah. with a let's finger play. and a half, Brooke is wanting to rage on you. So let's just let her rage on you and ask why. Why, Matt? Why? Oh, I thought we were letting Brooke. Okay. <laughs> well, she didn't jump on it like I expected, so I did for her. <laughs> I was just trying to be polite. Go ahead, Matt. 
since yeah, when do yeah. we care about that? You're right. True. I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> I didn't hate it. No, and and I think I honestly think that maybe the circumstances led to that rating a little bit and that I kind of forced myself to see it, you know what I mean? <laughs> Instead of like having that excitement of wanting to go see it. <laughs> like uh, I was like, "Oh, I got to get this done for films get fingered." So I saw it and I will be honest with you. Don't put this on a, us. <laughs> I, I'm gonna. You're gonna be appalled at me for this. I on and off slept through about the last half hour. I, I I like. I don't know what it was. I just like. So I vaguely remember parts of the ending, but <laughs> I didn't love the characterization of the movie uh, from the main characters. I felt like the movie was more less about telling the story and more about showing really cool things. I got the story, I got the conflict, great, but there were just a couple things that kind of bugged me about it. One thing I really did like, I really liked the kid that played Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. I thought he was really cool, and I thought I wouldn't because unlike apparently a lot of people, I'm a big fan of the uh Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I thought he did an amazing job as Spider-Man. Uh, he was my favorite Spider-Man to date, and I was so upset when when they dropped him or whatever happened. I don't. The like competition something. wasn't so fierce. Yeah. I mean, Toby. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm a fan. I'm so, a fan of Garfield uh... too. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of those films, but I'm, I'm a fan of Garfield. I really liked the first one. I didn't love the second one, but I loved Andrew Garfield's portrayal of Peter Parker. Um, kind of that smart alecky side of him. Uh, I loved the chemistry he had with Emma Stone and everything. So, <clears throat> um, so I didn't think I would like the new Spider-Man, and I really did like him. I thought it was kind of weird that Tony Stark is in the middle of this moral crisis throughout the movie because of the whole Sokovia thing, and like he's he doesn't want you know anyone else to die and stuff like that, and he's feeling a lot of guilt for that. It seemed like, but then when it comes time to battle you know arguably the greatest superhero in the world captain america or not battle him but bring him in right he's all about just bringing in a teenage kid to help him do that that seemed weird to me but uh, so there were just some weird things to me but that's that's enough i want to hear more about what you guys liked about it well uh i i I too enjoyed spider-man um interesting that's where this is paul rudd this paul rudd is amazing as always uh so to me, the Spider-Man, like, I, I, I felt like uh, Marvel Studios nailed combat Spider-Man in the, whatever, eight minutes or whatever that he was on film. I don't, I don't know how much it was. They nailed him in those eight minutes where Sony hasn't nailed it in 20 years or whatever it is that they've had. Right? 16, 16 years? When did the first one come out? 2000? Something? He, combat Spider-Man is weird. Combat Spider-Man is like a nerdy, talky. He's almost he's almost like a conversational villain that's always talking through the fight about what they're doing, but it's it's jokey and clever. And Marvel nailed that. They they yeah. they nailed it. Where Sony's never gotten that right to me ever. Yeah. And and uh, I like how you had the contrasting personalities um, between Peter Parker and Spider-Man. You yes. notice when he put the suit on, yeah. he was much more brash. He was yeah. much more confident. Yeah. And that's very much like comic book Spider-Man slash Peter Parker. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah, no, true. And um, regarding Tony bringing him in, I I've, I think so. Uh, 
I'm, I'm a little surprised, I guess, that that's the way... It, it made it feel a little shoehorned in there, I guess. Like, right. just kind of shoved into this, you know, little sex that's section. That's the only that's... guy you could have gotten. Yeah, how about Jessica <laughs> Jones? Like, she, she, you know, like, she's somebody you probably could have guilted into doing it, or... I don't know. But, um... Anyway, I, I, I didn't have a huge more problem with the... With the with with having it with not having a moral dilemma with bringing you in, I mean the 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 clip that they show of Spider Man basically getting pummeled by a car into into what is it into a train or something, and he like jumps out of it. I think mm-hmm. he's basically saying, "I know you can take the punishment. Uh, like you're not really in danger, probably not not a huge amount of danger anyway. Like look, you can survive this. We're not dealing with orders of magnitude higher than that, probably." So I think he, I think he didn't feel like there was a lot of danger, and I agree with him. He's been, he's been fighting. I think they mentioned that film. He's been fighting crime for like a year, doing this, and there's clips all over about it and showing what he's capable of. I don't. I think it was a calculated risk and, and not one that was a huge, a huge moral dilemma to me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's only been six months in this universe that he's actually been fighting crime, but his abilities, oh, like his 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 ability to like catch a cement mixer in midair kind of like outweighs any like you mentioned moral dilemma like he is Mm. qualified bring him to the table and certainly i think tony stark would recognize a fellow ambitious young genius and understood what peter parker feels at that age yeah and 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 scarlet witch isn't isn't that different right Uh, she's maybe a couple years older and she's been thrown in, I, so I don't know. I, I didn't have a huge, a huge deal. But much like a song of ice and fire, these kids get thrown into the fire early, and uh, mm. sink or swim. Yeah, and I don't doubt that Tony Stark recognized that potential in him and all those things that you're saying. That's all well and good. I just thought it didn't fit with where his character was at at the time with the Sokovia stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's all. But the Sokovia, the Sokovia stuff really is about checks and balances about. Uh, about taking, uh, making choices that endanger a lot of people that have no choice to stick up for themselves. They can't defend themselves, and this is about engaging someone that can defend themselves. But so I get what you're saying about his character being in a place of minimizing damage and trying to control outcomes, but a little bit different to me. It also becomes pretty apparent that Tony Stark's stance on the registration was really just about appeasing his girlfriend <laughs> and a little not, bit and not not the reality of his situation and where he still made his own decisions he still oh really you know, oh I yeah um you might have been asleep that. during this part but he yeah. actually went against um secretary ross to right. to go in and intercept um captain america and the winter soldier so mm-hmm. like he he wasn't holding himself any more accountable than he had been before so it was really just a lot of what I felt like ego and lip service. So and I did, I did like that that he finally did that because it seemed like the first hour of the movie was Iron Man. We got to sign this, Captain America. No, I don't want to sign this. Okay, let's fight about it. Let's argue about it first of all. Okay, let's argue about it some more. Okay, now let's fight about it. And then finally, it seemed like there was some breakup to that. Yeah. <clears throat> I would say, so Tony was right. Let's just be absolutely clear about this. What they're talking about is minimizing damage that gets done and people that get harmed and 
uh, all this stuff, right? Uh, when, when they're just kind of out off on the, doing their own thing. So let's take a step back. Ima- I mean, imagine Cap signs. He gets browbeaten into it. Okay, I'll sign. And so do the others. So everyone signs. The bombing goes off like it would have regardless. The German police take down Bucky because everyone signed and no one interferes. And so, yeah, he's taken and dead. But Cap and Iron Man don't feud. Zemo is basically, or Zemo, what was it? Uh, Zemo. Zemo is basically left holding his dick, right? <laughs> because the plot, the plot to make them feud doesn't go anywhere because they're unified under this plan. So you're down one Winter Soldier. Yeah, for those people that love Bucky, that's too bad. Uh, but you're up all those civvies and cars and bridges that were destroyed as he escaped. Mm-hmm. Eventually you find out that Winter Soldier didn't do it. And you go catch Zemo. So Tony was right. Sign the damn thing. Take a back seat to, you know, <laughs> to your egos and to your testosterone dicks of wanting to run around saving things. <laughs> Let things play out. And guess what? You'd have been ahead of the game. Ooh, I don't know, man. Big picture, though, they're still at the mercy of decision by committee, which, yeah, sure, maybe in this particular instance, they might have saved a little bit of property damage, but oh, in the long run, n- no way. I'm, I'm fully, I'm, I'm both team cap for shallow reasons and team cap for these guys are qualified to make the best decisions about superheroing, not... Um, I don't know, a, a, a United Nations sanctioned committee of 50 people with 50 different political agendas. Maybe. I mean, it's, just, it's I mean, this translates to today. I mean, um, you know, when, when, when Obama uh, went in and, and got, uh, you know, went, went in completely illegally to another country's space, um, you know, he had like permission or whatever, I guess, but uh, basically just went in and assassinated somebody on foreign soil. Um, tons of, you know, fuck you, America people were really happy about it. There were a lot of people that were really uneasy about it. You know, here's mm. an American basically just choosing to, based on his own personal decisions, murder someone. And, you know, that's not really what our country is supposed to be about, although I'm, I'm sure some people would disagree that are listening uh, across different borders. But but internally, we don't think that's what our country's about. And, um, you know, this is an international group. You know, Black Widow is not American. Scarlet Witch is not American. This is an international group of, of superheroes basically just choosing how they want to go about using their powers. And I, that is dangerous. Where where is the line? And if you're not checked at all, yeah, I'm I'm Team Tony on this one. If you're not checked at all by something, where's the line? Well, yeah, I guess that's the difference between heroes and villains, right? They they have to make the right decisions, but it also comes down to responsibility and accountability. And the fact is, the government wasn't funding the Avengers. Tony Stark was like so. Basically, the Avengers owe no one nothing. They are more powerful than anybody who can make them owe things. Um, it's kind of like a like a capitalism type situation. They have they have the the means and the ability. Why would they not 
but we're not really privy to all of those details about, you know, where the money's coming from, um, who assigns the missions, especially with S.H.I.E.L.D. being broken up. So I think missing some of those details um, makes it more difficult to choose a side, at least in my mind, because it it all comes down to the, the logistics, right? But I enjoy that this movie wasn't about logistics, and I would argue that it was very much about character. I mean, they did an amazing job of setting up a lot of emotional investment. Like, uh, I thought it was brilliant filmmaking that they opened with uh, Tony and that memory demo thing yeah. uh, with his parents, mm-hmm. which it's you know, the, doesn't... It's the second scene, right? It's after they do the whole oh, action bit in... Yes, in uh, Laos or wherever. But, right, yeah. Um, uh, I thought that was perfect because it, it also demonstrates like him giving away his wealth and investing in, you know, future scientific research and technologies. Um, it also set up, you know, the whole fight with Pepper. Um, I thought that, uh, the scene between T'Challa and his father was so powerful, even though it was tiny, just seconds long. Um, Zemo's voicemail, we didn't need any like flashbacks to his wife and kid and father just just that one voicemail him listening to it it's just like oh so subtly done so deftly done um peter's genuine interest in protecting his aunt like so so well managed how about these... the, how about the pen the pen thing the little yeah insertion of the little pen discussion with his dad and those pens being a, a huge moment in history and throwing that in character wise yeah uh, i think I think, yeah, I think you're, I don't know if you were going to make a larger point. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to gush about the, how, how well they developed characters yeah. in such tiny little segments of time to still make a reasonably long movie. Just, yeah, it's, it's just it's, a very well-crafted film. It's those little attention, little pieces of attention to detail that make these movies what they are to me, which is, which is a cut above most, most action films, right? Yeah. They nothing's... do, they do care about the motivations of these characters and they go, maybe not an extra mile, but at least an extra quarter mile to make sure the audience is invested in them. And it's a difference to me. I don't want this to turn into a you know a DC Marvel thing, but it is a difference to me between where those universes are going. And mm-hmm. Marvel very much does care about these characters and wants to serve them. They change some things. Um, but when they're changing them, they're usually trying to change them in the spirit of a character somewhere that they're going, and they're consistent about it, I think. For the most part, you're right. I think I think they, they're doing a really good job of continuity throughout this universe. Um, and also, like, not overplaying it. They're, they they kind of trust the audience to, to pick up on these small emotional cues and yeah. um, parallels yeah. between the movies, which I really love. I thought they yeah. were. I thought they were a little heavy-handed with the Black Panther stuff. Um, <gasps> no, I loved. So Black Panther was the best part of the film to me. I loved so him. So great. I thought he was amazing. But, All hail King T'Challa. But I, yeah, but I th- I thought the 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 moments with his father were a little. I don't know. They felt a little heavy-handed, and his vigilantiness was a little. It was a little bit of a jump to me, but but he was awesome. I loved him. Uh, more please. Excited. Yeah, I was super excited for that movie. Although does just does just every run of the mill? I mean, I guess I guess this I guess uh, their country isn't run of the mill is what what we'll learn. But uh, does just everyone have carbonite freezing tech? No, uh, Wakanda, where he's from, his this this made up African country, is actually super technologically advanced, way more than the rest of the world. Huh. So, 
no, not everybody has it, and this is, like, the best place for it. I guess it would make sense, because carbonite freezing was invented a long time ago in a galaxy. <laughs> I don't think it's away. necessarily carbonite freezing. Don't ruin but... this for me. They're in the same <laughs> Disney family now, Brooke. It can be the same technology. Fine. Sorry, what, were, what was your point there? I don't know. Okay. Um, also, like, the, the whole universe is getting so much more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> There's just so many bloody characters. It's like, it's George R. R. Martin <laughs> hanging out in the green room. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> making up new characters to <laughs> shift into this movie. But I, I do like that the rest of the Avengers who weren't there, like Bruce Banner and Thor, I guess the other two Avengers who weren't there, weren't ignored. They are actually, like like worked as plot devices like uh when uh secretary ross was like do you guys know where bruce banner is yeah yeah <laughs> which was a good callback you're, you're like really responsible guys because <laughs> yeah. you have Forgetting no idea what your members are doing right now it's actually his responsibility but whatever yes. yeah. where's that god huh <laughs> yeah what what's he up to right now yeah it was uh it was great i also can I go through the other things that I really loved about this film? Well, I want to ask Matt if he was awake for the uh, for the uh, Empire Strikes Back reference by Spidey. Yes, I did see that. It was wonderful. Go Wedge. Yeah, go Wedge. That really old That movie. really old movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. Did love Spider-Man. I'm finally interested in Spider-Man again. I didn't see any of the Andrew Garfield movies. I was just like, why would I? Tobey Maguire in Spider-Man 3, Gone Dark and Dancing Down the Street is pretty much like my peak my spider-man peak that's a that, that's a low valley for a peak <laughs> i know it's sarcasm but uh yeah it'll it'll be good i'm concerned that tony stark has so much control over this kid but i guess we'll find out how that plays out in future movies that won't last. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. It's the, like, one, Peter Parker's kind of under his spell. Like, at one point during the movie, he's like, I have one job today, and that's impressing Mr. Stark. Yeah. And Tony Stark, like, made a suit and all his tech now, and mm, mm, we'll see. Um, but uh, I also really loved Sam Wilson, who, like, in The Winter Soldier, the movie, was introduced as a, a trauma counselor at the VA. Yeah. Like, as a veteran specialist. Yeah. And all throughout this movie, like, Bucky Barnes coming back is, like, the ultimate case for a VA counselor. But instead, Sam Wilson kind of acts like a jealous teenager <laughs> around his best friend's old best friend. I love the, yep. like, all of the little well, interactions. Exactly. Fantastic. Also, I love that Falcon hasn't been forgotten about. Like, he is, like, a very contributing member of the Avengers. I think Sam Wilson's an excellent character, and I'm really glad that you know, he's uh, valuable. Yeah, Papa Doc did a good job in this one, too. Uh, he, it's very easy for him, I think, for a character like him to get lost in the, in the fray with all these people with big powers, and mm. he didn't. Marvel didn't let that happen, and and uh, and and Papa Doc didn't let it happen either. And uh, yeah, I, I I'm a big fan of of Falcon, but I did have a problem though. I felt like they had a, a problem with Vision, and a problem with Scarlet Witch. Is the problem that they're super powerful and we're totally underutilized? Yes, specifically Vision in that fight. That fight <laughs> at the airport. Vision, go back and watch it. I, I want to go watch it again, but I'm pretty sure from the time they're like all charging at each other and, and you know, running and then like they all break out into these little mini fights. Mm -hmm. 
Vision does nothing for like the first half of the fight. Like he is he just watching? He could Vision is powerful enough depending on what you think of Scarlet Witch too, which is a little vague in this universe to me, but Vision's basically powerful enough powerful enough to stop this whole thing himself. Yes. He's extremely powerful. He can do not whatever he wants. He's not like Dr. Manhattan, uh if you've read uh if you've read that Watchmen, Watchmen but but he's damn close. I mean, he can mm-hmm. do a lot. And mm-hmm. he was totally underutilized. And it's kind of like a... I hate deus ex machina moments where, you know, you just bring in some sort of tool to just end a fight uh, just because you can. And I don't know. I don't know. I felt he was underutilized. And Scarlet Witch too. her powers seem very vague. Mm-hmm. We'll let her do whatever it is that we want her to do to move the plot along because her powers are vague enough and no one will call us on it. Her her powers essentially, yeah. if, if you know them, are, are to bend probabilities a little bit, to to uh, use what are called hexes, basically, to alter the probability that things can happen, to, to work a spell to make something possible it shouldn't be. And I don't know, this is a weird use of her powers to me. But here here's the thing. This is still a Captain America movie. And so they couldn't, (laughs) they they couldn't make it a vision and Scarlet Witch movie Two, She's still quite young. So her powers are still developing. Right. And they're, they're newly formed as well. Relatively speaking. Uh, Three, they really did a good job of mm, sort of like making the vision into a bit of an adolescent naive personality. Yeah. Which means that he's not going to, you know, alpha the situation, which he certainly could do. But um, so he'll he'll kind of take a back seat and and try to let uh, his dad and his his dad's angry friend make the decisions. So, yeah, a little. I, yeah. I, mean... I, I understand what you're saying, but there's. They need their own movies, basically. To... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want everyone to have their own movie, but I, I, know, I do. I do feel like this should have been an Avengers film. I mean, it, it's it's. I don't know. It, it, when you bring this much into it, it, it doesn't feel like a Cap film anymore. It's not isolated enough, and yeah, it was. It really one of... was just a continuation of Age of Ultron. Yeah, yeah. Is there a way of making another Captain America movie, but still have it be an Avengers movie? <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, I'm I'm so glad they brought in Rudd. I was a little worried about how he would fit in to this world. He he fits in. He fit in. To be clear, I loved Ant Man. I thought it was I thought it was really good. Um, but and and he fit into that world just fine. Into his own isolated film, you know. Um, but I was a little worried about how he'd do with his comic mm-hmm. timing and his personality and presence with these other jocks, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought it was magic. I thought he was great. Nailed it. Yeah. I thought he he was one of the bright spots for me. Uh, Ant Man's my favorite Marvel movie since probably Iron Man, or maybe, oh, nice. <laughs> or maybe the first Captain America, um, which I I loved both of those ones. I loved Ant Man. I loved it. And uh, I think I think his comic relief was kind of the replacement for because Tony was in a more somber mood on this movie. Mm. and so it was nice to have uh rudd in there to kind of make us smile a little bit yeah along with spider-man 
Also, I'm so glad I didn't spoil myself because I had no idea he was going to go big. And so when that happened, I literally yeah. like whooped in the theater. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Did, did anyone did. else feel like he got too slow when he was big like that? Um, he felt like a kind of like grasping monster. It was very, of... it was very like, like King Kong God, right. Godzilla-y. Godzilla-y. Yeah. yeah. Which I think... There's either some physics behind that that I don't know about, yeah, or too. they were playing to that trope. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, he was quite slow. But I guess if he was well, moving... and not calculus, it's like it's like it's like he grew and his brain shrunk because he wasn't. It didn't seem like he was doing really calculated things anymore. Mm. It was just kind of like move my huge body around, and he was trying <laughs> to operate as a distraction. That's what he said he was doing. Mm-hmm. So maybe that maybe that maybe he was going for King Kong. Maybe they'll watch a King Kong movie instead. But. Uh, I don't know. It felt it felt weird when he went big. Matt, what were your other issues with the movie? I think that was about it. Yeah. I just like I want not, I want you me. to have a moment to talk about the movie that you really liked. So <laughs> sit back Thanks, and <laughs> let you talk about it. I really it, really liked it, but it still had its problems for sure. Any, any we haven't movie, even talked about the villain yet. Any movie that I can see Paul Bettany in, I will like. Even a Knight's Tale, in in as far as it's got Paul Bettany. Especially oh, I love a Knight's Tale. Tale. Me too. I was hoping especially you'd say a Knight's Tale. <laughs> now that now that Mr. Seymour Hoffman has passed on, Paul Bettany's moved into my number one favorite actor slot. Oh wow! Oh nice. That's Whoa. I love that guy. Yeah, yeah. lost I, I like him in so many. I I really liked him. I didn't love the movie A Beautiful Mind, but I loved him in it. Hmm. Um, I really like him in A Knight's Tale. Which is Master and Commander. Oh, he was good in Master and Commander. Yes. It seems like none of the movies that he's in are particularly memorable to me, (laughs) but his role in them is always, it always sticks out to me as like the role of the film. He was good in that tennis movie, that romantic comedy, too. Yeah, he has his own rom com. (laughs) I'll bet he is a leader. I bought it. (laughs) Wow. I bought the idea. I didn't buy the movie. <laughs> and then he had that great interview on, I think it was Conan. Oh, yes. Where Jason Statham. Yes. Um, did you hear about this one, Brooke? No. You know, Jason Statham, he was kind of poo-pooing the Avengers, probably out of jealousy, and talking <sighs> about how they use so much CGI and green screen and stuff that he, Statham said something along the lines of, they could bring in an old granny or something, an old grandma, and she could be an Avenger with all the work they do to make them look good and stuff. And Paul Bettany said something along the lines of, well, I've, I've, I've watched a lot of Jason Statham movies and, you know, I don't know. They talk about how we need a stunt coach. He talks about how we need a stunt coach for us. And sometimes I just kind of think that maybe Jason Statham needs a, like an acting coach. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he was, he was, he was a little more clever than that, but that was the gist. And it was pretty awesome. Yeah. And then he just stopped and smiled. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like this pause where everyone was like, He didn't actually he didn't watch. actually finish drawing the comparison line. He just let the audience draw the line that they knew where he was going and it was pretty awesome. Cuz he's a, he's a gentleman. Oh, so great. Yeah. <laughs> uh we haven't talked about the villain yet. Uh and then we should probably call it quits on this cuz we've been going for a while. Uh yeah. What do you guys think about the villain? I feel like this whole Sokovia thing was like a little played out. I was like done with this made up 
Eastern European country. And I feel like he could have had a little more pizzazz, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. I I, I didn't really, like, I wasn't, your eyes kind of, like, glaze off of him. Right. But but then again. It took me a while to realize that he was the villain. (laughs) There you go. There you go. But that's actually one thing I liked. Yeah, that's that's actually one thing I liked, too. He's not really a villain. He's a guy that disagrees with their lack of control. Every superhero movie is about good guy versus bad guy. Every single superhero movie up until this one. This one was about good guys versus good guys. And there was a bad guy kind of in there just to push the story along a little more. Which was brilliant. Like very like, holy cow, this guy, don't waste him. He's obviously very intelligent. But um, at the same time, he was not. Yeah, I I just I guess I like my bad guys with a little more charisma. Yeah, well, I think he he was going for it, achieved kind of uh, a little bit of an everyman feel. He's just a guy that's had a hard time and Mm -hmm. did something about it. And uh, I don't know. I, 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 maybe I wasn't paying enough attention, but I, I had real problems with the level of information he seemed to have out of maybe nowhere. I mean, he, he mentions that, that uh, Black Widow telegraphs out a bunch of information or whatever about, um, about the history of, of espionage, I guess. And I don't even remember that event occurring, but apparently it did. Yeah, and... in the Winter Soldier, she released all the S.H.I.E.L.D. files and the Hydra files, because Hydra was S.H.I.E.L.D. And so he basically decoded them, because random soldier number 12 can do those kinds of things, mm-hmm. uh, and found access to all this stuff. And then, I mean, it just seemed, his whole plan seemed pretty relying on a lot of things just kind of going right mm. and they happen to but i don't know I, I the the whole the whole plot of getting to this civil war seemed a little far-fetched to me like a little too convenient but i liked him actually and the job he did fine but the plot itself was was a little reachy to me yeah i i think they could have done a lot worse i think they could have been oh yeah sure I hesitate to use this word, but the realism of the captain of this movie and the Winter Soldier, uh, especially in comparison to like the Avengers and Age of Ultron, mm-hmm. and that it's it's so much less cartoony and a little more relatable and believable. Not realistic necessarily, because obviously everything did fall into place very well, as you pointed out. But it's, it's still it's still recognizably this world. And there is a lot less CGI, so you're less distracted by... Like, I I compare the opening fight scene of Civil War to the opening fight scene of Age of Ultron. And it's just, like, light years ahead in in terms of my interest in it, of how cool it looks, um, of how uh, real the the stunts and gags are. It's just... I would agree with that. Age of Ultron, for me, was the low point of... (laughs) Of the Marvel movies, it's probably so my least geez. favorite one. It fell a little yeah. flat. I, I feel like uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't throw my hat in the ring for my favorite Marvel film, which was maybe the first one for this universe. Hulk might have been before it, but I don't know if they actually consider it to be part of it. Anyway, uh, Iron Man. I feel like Iron Man mm. has a real, a very, very much a sense of realism to it, mm-hmm. of a man making choices in a real world and creating this thing from nothing uh, using his brain, but but following following our real world rules and guidelines. Yeah. So you and I agree there. Yeah. Yeah, Iron Man was excellent. Not my favorite, but 
still oh so and it, it it stands up like you can watch it today and it's still yeah, a, a yeah. great action so movie. would you consider civil war your favorite to this point brooke yes all right uh but winter soldier before that was my favorite and the first avenger before that was my favorite so basically i'm i'm solidly team cap can't really be swayed at this point he could have, he could have we'll murdered he could have murdered a hospital full of sick children and you would still be team cap Yes, I'm like yeah. I'm not gonna lie to you. Yeah, so... as long as as long as he keeps those pecs. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There, how and, about and... how about the total cheese uh, fan service holding the helicopter to the helicopter pad? <laughs> Hold on, let me let me rotate my arm a little bit so you can orgasm? see you can see the bicep in the right angle. Let me rotate the arm a little bit. Brooke had to go change after that scene. <laughs> I flooded the theater. <laughs> And and here's the thing. I'm firmly team cap. I want him to have amazing relationships. I want him to thrive in this world, but that whole, and and I love Sharon Carter, the um, love interest um, in, in the film. And I would love to see them get together, but I hate the way that kiss turned out. Like it very much felt like they did Sharon Carter a disservice because she's a very, capable agents but yeah. it, it kind of felt like um payment <laughs> like yeah. like here i'll kiss you because you helped us out <laughs> it was just like oh it was just like it was gross it just didn't feel great um yeah, someone's just jealous yeah i think <laughs> they need, no i'm not i want him to be happy i really do but, even if it's not with me but sharon carter <laughs> has agency and and that needs to be protected and she doesn't need a crush to do the right thing like yeah. just her own convictions right but it, it made her look like a, a steve groupie and and it made that's steve what she looked like like he kissed her out of obligation that wasn't that that wasn't just the kiss her whole her whole series of actions in that film made her seem like a steve groupie well she, uh, she's giving the, the eulogy for her mom and she turned it into a moment about steve or sorry her aunt and she turned it into a moment about steve like her whole role in the it's it's one of the problems I had. I feel like she her whole role in the film was just to serve him. And yeah, and she it, didn't and if it feel was, like she had agency at all, not just in the kiss, but in, at all. But that's the thing: if she wasn't the romantic interest and she did all those things, she would just be doing the right thing. She would just be supporting Team Cap oh, like everybody else on that team, right? I'd say but she because... would be being a shitty agent is what I'd call it. Her, <laughs> she, no, no, because let's be, be clear: her loyalties are very, very clear. Right. <laughs> what was that sigh for, Matt? Do you not agree with this, or you just don't care? Uh, I didn't know my mic would pick up. I'm leaning clear back in my chair right now. He's, he's ready. He's ready to move on. Okay. Okay. Well, hmm. uh, you guys can keep going if you want. No. Okay. I have one one last thing to say before we move on to the actual cast. Are you ready? Uh, mm. I don't know. I didn't like Bucky going back into stasis. The entire movie, the entire last movie, Winter Soldier. Were about liberating Bucky Barnes. Even, arguably, even the first movie was about liberating Bucky Barnes. And now it just feels like this weird convenience to put him back under. Not like a true point in his arc. And I don't like it. Hmm. So I'm, I'm hoping that the Wakandan doctors fix him up right quick and he gets back to the, the universe. Because, um, one, I like the character. Two, I like that... Steve has a buddy, and three. I'm very much into Sebastian Stan, the actor who plays Bucky Barnes. Yeah, I'll I'll go a complete 180 on you. I don't care yeah. about the Winter Soldier. 
Me never too. have. I know. Die. I, oh I know. I, Cap has enough friends, and this guy's arc is so tired to me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I could completely so do could it be him. that the Physically Captain America person. films are more about the redemption of Bucky Barnes than they are about Steve Rogers? It's the same thing. They are all... Oh. <laughs> Oh, you're saying they're... They've been through so much together. They've so fought connected. in the war together. Oh, they grew up together. Bucky Barnes is part of Steve Rogers, as just evidenced like by the last three films. <laughs> yes, just like you guys are a part of me, except for SCAD right now. <laughs> Sorry. You're a dirty toenail part of me right now. I'm very upset. Cool. <clears throat> All right, we've spent... We've spent uh, a good amount of time talking about this film, uh, which got mixed mixed reviews. Uh, a finger and a half from Matt, two fingers from Scat, and three fingers from uh, Fangirl Brooke. And uh, we're going to end end our uh, commentary on Captain America: Civil War now. And uh, we'll make sure to let you know when the next films get fingered is coming, so you are ready. Thanks, thanks guys. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Let's just say I saw the movie. <laughs> That's all that needs to be said. I just have a phone call to make to a certain organization in Salt Lake City. <laughs> One with interests in Matt Packer. I made it happen. <laughs> well done. All we, for we this. Could, we all for not, this. We cannot do it. No, like, I was I was telling Scott, like if we wait another three weeks, all of the the fervor over Civil War will have passed. I had to do it. You guys have seen it, both of you. I had to pull my weight and pull through and see it too. I would we'll say try to make your theft count. It's mm. it's been like a long, long time since the actual Civil War, and there's still fervor about that. <laughs> I think well, maybe that's a bigger well... deal. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, Maybe just where you guys are. <laughs> well, let's just say that my my thoughts on the movie might explain why I think the real Civil War is more interesting than the movie Civil War. <laughs> I'm excited to hear them. Oh, boy. <sighs> Thanks. That felt good, guys. That felt real good. <laughs> Glad. I really liked this movie. Okay. Matt, Matt and I considered uh, not having Matt uh, force watch uh, Captain America and instead making you force watching uh, you on uh, Yoga Hosers, the new Kevin Smith film. Yoga Hosers? <laughs> oh my God. The second film in are the Are you guys going to watch it? Oh, oh yeah. No, it's not. Are, are we going to watch it? Excuse of course. Me? As soon as I can find a showtime in my city. As soon as we can find where to watch it. <laughs> All right. Should we, uh, <clears throat> should we get down to it? Let's do it. Yep. All right. This is going to be heavy, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you can get that bad taste out of your mouth from the film's gut-fingered portion. No, I was fine. All I just right. wanted to let you guys talk. <laughs> that sigh indicated... <laughs> All levels of not being fine. 
Whoops. I was like clear back in my seat. I didn't think my mic would pick that up at all. It was it was like uh when you when you make the punniest of puns and Brooks groan, it was like nearly that bad. All Thanks right. for testing it out. Yeah. Sorry guys. Sorry. That's I okay. didn't mean to have a bad attitude. <laughs> Matt, having, I really did enjoy hearing what you guys said. Having bad attitudes with your friends is what being friends is all about. True. All right. You guys ready? Yeah. Yes. All right. Hey, sirs and ladies, just wanted to give credit where credit's due on the music that we used for this episode. We had some goodies. Not as many this time, but the ones we did use, I really enjoyed. In particular, Scad's rendition of Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution, spot on by the Scadster there. That's from uh, ACDC's iconic album, Back in Black. You guys know I'm not a huge metalhead, hard rock, glam rock, whatever you want to call ACDC, but that album is kind of a must-have. you, you got to add that one to your collection. Uh, also, we had song called Circa 46 by one of my favorite bands. Now I say these bands are one of my favorite bands. <laughs> this one I love, The Rocket Summer. That's from their album Life Will Write the Words. Good album, but if you're looking to get into The Rocket Summer, I'd recommend the two albums Hello, Good Friend and also Do You Feel. Good stuff, good stuff. Then finally, we were pleased to share with you uh, The Reigns of Castamere arranged by our friend Aziz from the History of Westeros podcast. So wonderful arrangement by him, with him providing the vocals and that classical haunting guitar that you hear accompanying him. Uh, So thank you, Aziz, for graciously allowing us to play that on our podcast. If you guys want to check that out, you can do so over at History of Westeros' SoundCloud page. Just Google History of Westeros SoundCloud and you'll find it. And you can listen to and or download that track there. So, Thanks again, everyone, for joining us. Uh, We had a wonderful time with this episode this week, both with talking about the Red Wedding as well as doing some fingering of films. So can't wait to give you the next one here in a few weeks. Take care. Mm -hmm.